on this week's episode. First thing you gotta do is a Vinnie Barbarino look, okay? Your hair, for instance, very casual. It should look like it's being blown by unseen winds. That's right. We talk about master thespian Vinnie Barbarino in an early 80s Brian De Palma thriller. I'm Troy Sauer. Brad Anderson. And Sammy from the GGTMC. And this is Not a Bomb. Welcome back to a brand new episode of Not A Bomb Podcast. This is the show where we go back and look at movies that bomb. Brad, happy post-4th of July. Freedom. Freedom. America. Freedom isn't free. Yes. Yay. And on this very- Fireworks. Very, Fireworks. Yes. Very special oh American edition of Not A Bomb Podcast. We, we had to bring our, our great friend, Sammy, from the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. Sammy, welcome back. How are you? I'm good. How are you guys doing? A true patriot. Yes, <laughs> true patriot. definitely. We miss you. I burned, I burned my foot twice last night lighting fireworks. Uh, <laughs> oh, boy. Can we just say, okay, the fourth is fine. Light as many fireworks as you want. On July 5th, you better not light anymore. Knock it off. Well, they've been lighting them in my neighborhood since June yeah. something. Sammy <laughs> and I live in like the, yeah. like the, the firework capital of the world where people – just love fireworks. It's the worst. It's the worst. Uh, it, we started on the third, went into the fourth. Uh, we'll see how tonight goes. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm okay with the fourth. I, I like the uh, fact that you can go out on your patio and just sit down and you don't have to see the crowds, but you see all the fireworks like going off with all the different neighborhoods. So um, it's kind of a, it's kind of a cool deal, but listen, fireworks cast, let's do that. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, Hey, side note. Did you see the guy in Florida that like on July 2nd went out to his backyard at 3 AM and was pretending to be a firework? You said a guy in Florida and I'm like, I can imagine <laughs> it was a guy in Florida. There you go. That's America for you. So this week we're on episode, I think it's 56. I don't know. I know it's an it's even 56. number. 56. Yep. So I got to do a pick. We had a lot of fun last week with all of our, um, impressions sean connery <laughs> yeah there we go the christopher lambert and, and we did highlander i thought we'd stay in the 80s for our next episode and talk about a director that i think all three of us like brian de palma and go back um to 1981 and talk about blowout um i know sammy you've seen this because you and i have talked about this film before brad was this a first time watch for you that is correct. It was a first time watch for me. Holy cow. Wow. All right. Um, we'll get into and upon this. Upon doing a lot of research, uh, you know, if I would have known this was sort of one of the reasons why one of the lead stars was in my favorite movie, I might have gone back a little bit earlier. But, you know, I didn't know that until now. Yeah. That so you does, learn something new every that day. That does shock me. Tarantino is a huge fan of this, and it was because of Blowout that he decided to cast John Travolta in probably your favorite film, Pulp Fiction, right? That's correct. And when we get into the Palma, I'll kind of I'll tell you why I didn't see this movie. So, okay. Um, well, I, I just want to dive into it. I mean, usually we start with a little chit chat and go over a little banter or a particular topic, but 
On this episode, all three of us happen to own the Criterion edition of Blowout, which is a fantastic Blu-ray. But on that Blu-ray is an early, early Brian De Palma film uh, called Murder a la Mode from 1968. I think it was filmed in 67. It was a student film released in 1968. Early, early Brian De Palma. I thought uh, for those of us who made it through it, um, we would share our thoughts on that. So that means we, we got to get right a, into it. Do you have a fart sound on that soundboard, Troy? Do I? No. Um, should, oh, should I put? That would have been my reaction. <laughs> was, was it this reaction, Brad? No, God! No, God, please, no! 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 Absol- <laughs> yes, absolutely. Was that it? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Yes, because we were playing Xbox late, and I said, I'm going to hop off so I can watch Murder Alamode. Murder Mode. At like start at 1015 and I was already a little tired and I put it in and I'm like, oh, this is two hours and 15 minutes long. Oh, it's black and white in a student film. Nope. So, yeah. So you guys get to talk about it. <laughs> OK, well, Sammy and I will share our thoughts. I, I will be curious when we get there how much you made it through. But let's get into blowout. Um, we're going to this will be an interesting conversation. Um, Sammy, you you guys have covered some De, De Palma films on Gentleman's Guide, right? Yes. Yes, we have. Um Brian De Palma is a pivotal part of the show in some ways, um, basically due to his kind of influence on so many other filmmakers. Uh, but I would argue a big influence on me uh, growing up in the 70s as well. Uh, saw quite a few of his films in the theater, including this one. Oh, actually, you, you did see this in the theater? Really? Yeah. yeah, my mom was a big John Travolta fan. So, yeah, saw this in the theater. Saw Dress to Kill in the theater. Saw... Um, there was another one. There's something in between. I didn't see Carrie. I was too young. The Fury? If I did, I don't remember it. The, did you see The Fury? I, I remember seeing The Fury in the theater. I don't think I saw The Fury in the theater. I don't I don't think I did. But there's something we're missing in that mix. Obsession? I, no. No, no. I don't know. Maybe. We'll, I, we'll, I, I can't we'll get it. into that. We got the whole filmography and we talk about the Palma. We're, 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 we're skipping Brad's part here where we talk about why it made a podcast called Not a Bomb. Right, Brad? Absolutely. All right. So you could say that the, I'm the pinnacle. My part is the pinnacle of the show. It is. It's the most important aspect of it. You could listen to this one section and, and skip to our thoughts on it. But Brad, let's get into the numbers. I mean, this thing came out. It, it didn't do so well, right? No. So released July 24th, 1981. It was estimated budget of $18 million. And the film gross was around $13.8 million. Um, so it, it loses money. I will say the original uh, budget of this film was $3 million. When yep. John Travolta signed on, it uh, escalated times six. So uh, Travolta had a lot of uh, pull at this time, which I find kind of strange. But I-, I guess coming off like Saturday Night Fever and things like that, is that why? Yeah. Grease, Grease was huge as well. Yes, yes. Yeah, he was a big um, deal in the late 70s. Yeah. Uh, And then after this movie, he kind of goes into hiding for a bit. So um, (laughs) anyway, uh, Rotten Tomatoes, um, 84% for critics, 82% for audiences. I know Siskel and Ebert, I did watch their segment on this one, and they seem to enjoy this one quite a bit. Now, we were talking about, uh, before the show started, just about films releasing around this time, and I find them pretty interesting. And I want to know if you all saw these in the theater. Because I would have not been born at this time. So I want to know about you guys. All right. Uh, 
This is always the game we play when I come yeah. on. Yes. Did you I all see the Fox and the Hound in the theater? Yes. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you see Time Bandits? Oh yeah. Uh yeah yeah I did yeah. Okay. Did you see Enter the Ninja? Oh my God! <laughs> How many times did I see Enter the Ninja? <laughs> I wanted Not to in the be theater? a ninja. Yes. Wow. My dad took me to enter the ninja and I walked out of that thinking I was going to grow up to be a ninja. That's that started the whole where um, I don't I'm sure we've told this story before, but we'd go to the Army Navy store and buy the the throwing stars and practice <laughs> in the backyard on the wooden fence, not knowing that they sold them dull and we couldn't figure out why they weren't sticking. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah. I you never got to meet your father, but wow, that sounds like the coolest dad ever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I had the same experience. We went uh, with my parents, saw the Enter the, Enter the Ninja, and then uh, I immediately made all my friends go and watch Enter the Ninja. And then we all wanted to be ninjas. Yeah. I'm still trying to be a ninja. Mm. It's not going very well, but I'm not giving up. I gave that up. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, there was also a movie called Arthur that came out that year. Deadly that Moore. Month. Yeah. Yeah. Deadly Moore. Endless Love. I'm not familiar with Endless Love. No, that, uh, no, probably at my age, I, I might not have been interested in that. <laughs> and then Eye of the Needle? Oh, Donald Sutherland. Okay. Uh, I didn't see that in the theater, no. And I have seen la- it, though. The I, last one is Woofen. Oh, I yeah. Saw, I, saw I saw that in the theater. theater. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Guys, awesome job. I'm proud of you. Yeah. <laughs> Enter the Ninja. Wow. Seeing Enter the Ninja in the theater must have been an absolute experience. You it have, was. You have no idea what kind of an impact that film had on my childhood. And, and I mean, it started the American ninja craze for the most part. Um, but show Kasugi, man, it's, it's a classic film. We, we've got to talk about it someday. But unfortunately, I don't think it bombed. And um, I don't care what the critic says. You know, it's, yeah. it's well, yeah. a plus film. So <laughs> it's critic proof. You know, don't don't forget, I do still have those two films lined up, and I still would like you guys to come on our little show. I am there. I, I will dig out my ninja <laughs> outfit to come on your show to talk Enter the Ninja. I am ready. Um, so I, I'm curious. This this one didn't do well at the box office, but you had John Travolta, who was a pretty big star at that time, and Brian De Palma was a pretty big director, right? Um, did Did you find out any research on why this didn't do so well? Yeah, so it's interesting that this one, you know, I said it comes out in 1981, and I know you and I kind of went back and forth, but this is a 70s movie, um, and so it kind of misses that wave of 1970s. Um, and then there's also, I saw some stuff where word of mouth about the ending, and um, that kind of threw some people off, but I think one of the big things is just it misses that 70s wave. This is like a like a 70s movie that comes out in 1981, and we're kind of in a different era in cinema when this comes out you know maybe five years earlier this thing's a bigger hit but unfortunately it's not and that's why we're talking about it on our show or or more ninjas if it had more ninjas it would have been a hit yeah enter the blowout enter the blowout okay um yeah. you know most most cinema usually that first couple of years afterwards you'll you'll get some bleed over into a decade usually about a year sometimes two years and it'll kind of hang around but I do remember movies changing quite a bit because I was going to the movies a lot back then uh, with my parents. And uh, I don't know if that's the reason, though. I, I, honestly, I couldn't tell you the reason why this thing bombed. I think I think De Palma had some similar experiences like uh, Shyamalan. Is that how you say his name? Yep. I think people just got tired of the Brian De Palma movie. 
That that would make sense. I, well, and I think just based even on the stuff that he read that was coming out in 1981, you can see a shift in movie going audiences as far as what they're looking for. And I don't think they were looking for a blowout. Now, and I'll say this. I, I know one of the things we started talking about, especially when we kind of hit the year mark, was going back and, and trying to look at the trailers that were released or even the movie posters. The trailer for this is pretty good. I, I really like it. But I got to tell you, it's it's funny. We did Highlander last week, and that U.S. theatrical poster is basically just a black and white shot of Christopher Lambert's face, right? And yep. the blowout poster is a black and white shot of John Travolta screaming. So yes. it's it's really weird that the 80s, I mean, two movies we talk about, their posters are super similar with your lead star, their face just black and white and, and just some weird pose. Um, I'm, I'm just, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of give both posters for Highlander and this one, maybe a D plus. I, I don't think they're very effective. No. I was looking back at De Palma's filmography though. He doesn't have a lot of huge hits. Like if you think of, there's Carrie, a few films you I think, think Carrie's of, the biggest one. Yeah, Unforgiven is also another one. Yeah. We'll talk about that. You'll be surprised. He actually does have some big hits. Um, really? Oh, Because yeah. I was looking at like some of them, and it was like, oh, that's a bomb, that's a bomb, that's a bomb. Even Scarface. But we'll, yeah, okay, we'll save it. Well, we'll let's, save it. let's get into it. I mean, let's talk okay. about the people behind the camera, in front of the camera. Let's start with Brian De Palma. Now, before we talk about his filmography, I'm just, I'm real curious, and we'll start with you, Sammy, because uh, I'm a big fan of your show, and I know you've covered De Palma in the past. I think I know your opinion of him, but I mean, what, what do you think of Brian De Palma as a, as a writer and director? So there's an interesting history with me and Brian De Palma. When uh, I first started really liking films, started to realize that this is something that I enjoy. Um, I went back and looked at Brian De Palma movies because I was told that, you know, you should really check out De Palma stuff, you know, just talking with friends and things like that. Right. So I went back and watched or went and rented as many De Palma movies as I could. And I got to be honest with you, I didn't like them. Oh, didn't okay. like any of them, really. Right. <laughs> But as time has gone on, I've come to appreciate Brian De Palma uh, because of something that he does that I have come to appreciate as I've gotten older and become a film fan. And he puts a very large De Palma stamp on his movies. His movies always have a big set piece. They always have a De Palma-esque moment. All of his pathos are always there. His uh, voyeurism, his... Uh, lack of faith in humanity is uh, all those things are there. And I've come to appreciate him more. I'll, I will always err on the side that the stories in his films aren't always great. Uh, I like more than a handful. I think they're really good, but his cinematic vision as pompous as that sounds to say, it really works for me. Uh, I think about the scene in untouchables and the uh, train station I mean, it's brilliant movie making. Oh yeah, I think I think about the the blowout, the pivotal blowout scene in this. It's 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 brilliant. Uh, even if you don't like the movie, you could probably you would probably have a hard time arguing that that scene isn't great. Uh, Scarface, even a movie I don't really care that much for, has great moments. Um, so he doesn't always hit it out of the park, but he's always interesting, or at least he was. I don't really think he is anymore. He's still making movies. Um, he made one uh, a couple years ago called Domino with that guy from Game of Thrones. I haven't seen it, so I don't know. But um, I don't know, man. He he, I, I come to appreciate him because he. I could see the influence of some of my other favorite filmmakers. I could see him on them, 
And uh, obviously, my love of Italian cinema is there, too. And I know we'll probably talk about this a little bit, but you can definitely see, especially with something like Dress to Kill or even Obsession to some degree. I know the big the big poster boy here is Hitchcock, but Italian cinema really informs Brian De Palma as well. Yeah, I, I think that is a huge influence. Now, Brad, you, this is the first time coming to Blowout, but you know De Palma. Um, Tarantino talks about De Palma. What? Yeah. What are your, your thoughts on him just in general? It's, it's weird. Like we all have like the one director where we look at his filmography and say, I should see more of his stuff. And De Palma is that for me. Um, I, you know, I've seen Carrie and then I jumped to Scarface cause I was in high school once. So I've, I've seen Scarface, <laughs> yeah. um, you yeah. know, and obviously I've seen uh, the untouchables and then casualties of war. And then after that, you know, I've seen, I did not see the bonfire of the vanities. Is that what it's called with the yes. Tom Hanks mm-hmm. and all that? Yeah. Um, you know, and pretty much everything after 92 I've seen except like the last three films that he's done, Redacted, Passion, and then Domino. Um, you know, The Black Dahlia is one of those movies that I wanted to really like way more. Um, it was just okay. Hmm. Um, you know, I, growing up for me, you know, you had De Palma and then you kind of had Scorsese. Like those guys were pretty much who's going to be the best, you know, filmmaker of their generation. Um, you know, both of them were successful in the seventies and then both were pretty okay in the eighties. And then I know the story goes that De Palma puts out uh bonfire of the vanities in 90 and Scorsese puts out Goodfellas in 90. And then after that, it's pretty much over with, uh, in that discussion. So <laughs> yes. I think, you know, no offense to De Palma. Like I like the stuff I've seen from him. I don't love most of his stuff. Like again, Scarface is vastly overrated. Like it's, it's okay. It's an okay film. Um, there are, I agree. I agree. I can name 25 better gangster movies than Scarface. Um, but I do, I love that he has his own style. When you see a De Palma film, you know, and you're going to get, uh, complicated, uh, cinematography and, and, and camera shots. Um, just to kind of go, you know, there's a 360 shot in blowout that I, it blows my mind. Um, and, uh, you know, you're going to get things like that, those flourishes, um, you know, and I do respect De Palma because he's a huge influence on Tarantino and, and you can see that in Tarantino style as well. Um, but yeah, I, I I would say he's like the one sort of auteur that I just kind of have not really experienced as much as I probably need to. So I'm glad that, you know, I, I got blowout out of my system. Well, I, I, so I have this question with, with Tarantino, uh, he is obviously a film fan and he borrows liberally from a lot of different genres, styles, et cetera. Yes. Borrows. That's, yes. yes. I, I mean, it, it, it's, <laughs> I think it comes down to Tarantino loves movies and he will take yeah. ideas, scenes. Uh, he just, he, he, uh, he loves movies. And so as a filmmaker, he didn't go to film school. You know, he, he did all this stuff himself. He watches movies. He takes what he sees and he says, this is what I'm going to borrow from that. And I'm going to make it my own. And he very much comes up with his own style. So, you know, De Palma was doing that years before Tarantino came on the scene. And I, I kind of feel like as much shade as gets thrown at Tarantino sometimes in terms of the stuff that he borrows from, et cetera, et cetera, De Palma, I mean, tons of filmmakers, but De Palma is a classic example of 
you know, De Palma was doing Quentin Tarantino before Quentin Tarantino was doing Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, but I, I will say that Tarantino is a vastly better writer than De Palma is. I, I don't disagree with that at all. But I, I think, and, yeah. and I, I, what I'm trying not to do is make a comparison between the filmmakers in terms of quality or even quantity. I think yeah. it comes down to there is one thing that they both have in common. They both watch movies. They both have a uh, just a like for all movies, the genre, right. the, you know, what country it comes from, et cetera. And, and giallos. They yeah, like giallos. They, you can they say both it. Ital- they love Italian cinema and <laughs> they're very good about taking those elements that affect them as a filmmaker and saying, Hey, I'm bringing that over into my craft or art. I mean, De Palma and Tarantino, I, I would say kind of use their influences within their artwork. And, and I like that about them as filmmakers. Yeah. Well, think about that whole generation of filmmakers. I mean, you know, what we don't talk about, you're talking about the big wigs, but Lucas inspired by Kurosawa, completely right. riffed on Kurosawa. Spielberg inspired by yeah, maybe Frank Capra, maybe John Ford. Spielberg's got his own thing too, though, uh, which, you know, I even I have to admit he does. But Scorsese definitely has his own way of doing things. But there's some John Cassavetes there that he's riffing on hard. Yeah. All those guys are film lovers. That's the first generation of film lovers that are making movies. Um, and Tarantino really is, that's the next generation of that. Because he he hits the scene in the 90s. You know, De Palma, Lucas, all these guys are still working in the 80s. Who's that person now? I don't really know. Um, I mean, because Edgar Wright's still kind of Tarantino-ish. Right. But you definitely can see Edgar Wright riffing on everything he's seen. And uh, even Walter Hill, but uh, well, we didn't bring up Walter Hill, but he's not mentioned to that group. But there's another 70s filmmaker who's riffing on Peck and Paul and John Ford. So I, I think I fell in love with cinema with the generation that got the chance to make the movies they grew up loving. So the 70s. Right. So yeah. I think that it still exists. I think it just exists in this world now that I think is very cynical. I think we. We tend to say somebody steals from somebody. And look, I know there's some direct lifts from Tarantino films, but he still has a unique voice. No movie sounds like a Tarantino movie. It's got a unique sound, good or bad. And uh, you can't you can't argue that. And the same thing with De Palma. I don't think any movie sounds like a De Palma movie or even looks like a De Palma movie. I think it's its own unique animal. Yeah, I agree. And it, and it's funny, Brad. So we were talking um, about Brian De Palma as a filmmaker and his commercial successes. And this is something I find kind of striking as well. I, I kind of had the same, I don't know, idea that maybe De Palma didn't make a lot of box office hits. And if you go back and look at his filmography, um, we'll talk about Murder a la Mode later, you know, 68. <laughs> but, you know, 1972, he does um, Sisters. And and keep in mind, De Palma, for the most part, is a writer and director. So that's a great example. Sisters is something that he wrote, and he's also the director on. Comes in and does Phantom of the Paradise in 1974, which it's a bit of a modest hit. It's not a huge box office, but it had a pretty good run. Obsession, in 1976, he was credited for the story and was a director. Now, he made that film for $1.4 million, and it ended up grossing 4.4. So studios are taking notice of him at this point. He follows that up with Carrie, and this is probably his most profitable film for the most part because it had a $1.8 million budget, but it ended up making $33.8 million for the studio. So now he's he's you know sort of a box office success. He's a critical su- success too because critics are really liking his output. 
He follows that up with The Fury. I don't know if you've ever seen that, 1978, sort of a um, psychological horror film. Kirk I have Douglas. not. That has Kurt Douglas in it, right? Yeah. So you, Douglas, okay. you would know if you've seen it because it has a super memorable scene in it. Yes, it <laughs> okay. does. Yep, it does. But it's another one where it had a... Is that is that scored by John Williams? Is that a John Williams? No. Nah. Uh, you know what? Yeah. I, I'm not going to... I, I, I feel know. like he works with Pino Donaggio so much oh, okay. that I always go to Pino Donaggio, but I feel like John Williams may have worked with him at some point, so I don't know. Yeah. Didn't do the research on that one. The, the only thing I do know is it did have a modest budget. So now the studio gives them a little bit more money, give them seven and a half million dollars. The Fury comes back with 24 million. Um, and he and what's interesting, he's also teaching film as well. So he is teaching at Sarah Lawrence College. He ends up doing a student film or overseas a student film called um, Home Movies in 1979. So he's he's working on that while he's in between The Fury and his next film, dressed to kill and you are holding what up sammy <laughs> fucking brad was right man it's john, john williams? williams wow thank you steel nice trap cool, brad. yeah that was good good job that's good real good i'm kind of, i'm really impressed man <laughs> thanks thanks guys uh yeah. dress can i go to, home now no um <laughs> dress to kill 1980 six and a half million dollar budget grosses 31.9 million so he's got a string of hits here Blowout 1981. We already talked about those numbers. Um, does a little bit of crash and burn, but from a studio perspective, this guy was not just making hits, but he's a bit of a critical darling for the most part because people were digging his films. Um, and then um, Scarface was actually a modest success too, with a 23 million dollar budget. Um, ends up making 66 million, and then we get into Body Double, which is another flop. It's about six to $10 million in the budget only makes about eight. I didn't know this. I learned something. Um, he directed dancing in the dark, Bruce Springsteen's, um, video 1984. Yep. I yep. had no clue. And I guess <laughs> a, um, if Frankie goes to Hollywood, relax the body double version. There was a specific video that was released in conjunction with that film. He directed that. Wow. Then you get into 1986 wise guys, 87, the untouchables, 89 casualties of war, which I think is another bomb. Um, bonfires of the vanities is a big bomb. Huge bomb. Yes. Huge bomb. There's, there's a great book about the making of that film. Yeah. Um, raising in all, in all aspects, that movie should be one of the most talked about films of all time, just based on cast and director alone. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'm sure that one's going to make our show at some point. And don't forget, I mean, he did the first mission impossible in 1996, which spawned a huge franchise, but which is good, but it's totally different than any Mission Impossible movie now. <laughs> it no, stands absolutely. out. Yeah. The first and second one could not be any more <laughs> yeah. like, on the spectrum different. Yes. Like it is like yeah. night and day. Yeah. It, I, with I'm with you guys. I've always really liked De Palma. There are movies that I love that he does. And I almost equate him, I, I would almost say to like an American Argento, not that he just does thrillers and the giallos, et cetera. But with Argento, there's just this run of films that I really like a lot. And then the, there's a lot of stuff that Argento did in his later years that I'm, I mean, I, I'll watch it and I'll own it, but I, I really can't stand behind that one. And De Palma, I kind of feel the same way. I mean, mm. Mission Mission to Mars is his attempt at like 2001 Space Odyssey. I, I think that movie's kind of terrible. Um, but yeah, hundred million dollar budget on that film. Yeah. And, and, but there are some things like raising Cain. I really enjoy a lot simply because of John Lithgow's performance. And, and that is 
100% a giallo through and through, but, um, yeah, it's 100% ridiculous. too. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous, <laughs> but I, I don't know. De, De Palma for me is one of those that I look at his filmography and I go, wow, that's his sweet spot. And look at those films that he came out with and I love them. Yeah. And then everything else I'm like, Ooh, I, I really, nah, I, I don't think he's, he, he may be still doing the same camera tricks, but they're not as impactful and there's something missing from the quality of storytelling. Um, yeah, so for for me, it's it's sisters to blow out, sisters to blow out. He barely misses, and then uh, after that, it's it's dodgy. It's quite dodgy. Although I do I do have moments of things I like. I like I like the first hour of Snake Eyes. <laughs> I like uh, I like I, I'm going to say this out loud, and I'm kind of embarrassed to say it, but I like the first hour of Mission to Mars. <laughs> Oh, yeah. yeah I've, only, I've only seen it once, though. Sammy, so. Sammy, Sammy. Yeah, that's we need an intervention on that one, man. <laughs> uh, but I mean, I like I like a few things uh, after that. But for me, the, all the stuff before by blowout and back is, well, sisters to blowout is pretty much the range I like. And I'm starting to wonder, I'm looking now, I don't normally do this when we when I record either, but I'm looking now to see if that's 10 films, sisters to blow out because you know, Mr. Tarantino says after 10 films, you should walk <laughs> away. Yeah. Well, you, you can't count his uh, student film in the middle there because no. he just oversaw no. that. But I, Hey, casualties of war. I love casualties of war. I think that that's is only a six. fantastic film. It's a really great movie. It's not a, uh, it's not a get together and have a barbecue kind of movie. No, not at all. <laughs> It, <laughs> it's, it's a gut punch, man. It is a gut punch, but it's quite good. So kind of going throughout the rest of the people behind the scenes on this one, De Palma, you know, wrote blowout. You've got Bill uh, Mace Jr., which is uncredited. Uh, now, if you go and look at uh, Bill's, you know, uh, filmography and IMDb, I think there's one other film. So I'm, I'm not quite sure what his relation is behind the scenes to this film. Mm. Cinematography is Vilmos um, Zygmunt. Mm -hmm. So we should know him because yeah. he was an Academy Award winner for Best Cinematography on Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He yeah. was nominated for The Deer Hunter and the River. So in terms of 70s and 80s filmmaking, I mean, this is one of the best cinematographers out there in those decades. Yeah. Work with Spielberg quite a bit, too. Yes. Um, editor Paul Hirsch, which was an Academy Award winner for Best Film Editing on the original Star Wars. <laughs> he also wow. did Empire Strikes Back, but he, he, I mean, if you go through his filmography, it, it's a pretty long list, but he's worked on stuff like Footloose in 84, Steel Magnolias in 1989, which I, I love Steel Magnolias. <laughs> I think it's a great film. Um, okay. Even Ray 2004. So the, the pedigree of, I don't know, talent and award winners behind the scenes on this one is is pretty fantastic in terms of writer, director, cinematographer, editor. Um, so let's get in front of the camera. We're, we're going to talk about four people, and we've got to start with Vinny Barbarino himself, John Travolta. Now, how many <laughs> – John Travolta, and Brad, you, you won't know this because you weren't born, but in the late 70s, John Travolta was kind of a big deal. So – in 1975, he gets on a little show called Welcome Back, Cotter, and that's on for four years. That same year, he's starring in this crazy movie with Ernest Borgnine and uh, William Shatner, The Devil's Reign. <laughs> <laughs> he, he does Carrie in 1976, so the first time he works with De Palma. The Boy in the Plastic Bubble in 76, which is a TV film. 
Greece in 78, which is huge. So just um, when, when was – I totally forgot Saturday Night Fever. That was 77. 77, yep. So, you know, between- Which is known as a disco movie, but I would argue is one of the great American movies of all time, made yeah. by an Englishman, actually. But yeah, you, you look between how popular he was on the TV show. He, he had this saying, you know, up your nose with a rubber hose. That was his line from Welcome Back, Cotter. I, I can't even do it justice. But name <laughs> another actor who had sort of this catchy line that they made a board game off of. There was an actual up your nose with a rubber hose board game in, <laughs> in like late 70s based on John Travolta's dialogue. I mean, that's how that's how crazy people were for that character and specifically John Travolta. The guy just could not miss from the stream. Yeah. Now, post, like I think you mentioned this, Sammy, he he does Urban Cowboy in 1980, which I, I like. Yeah, um, I, think, I think that was a hit too. So I think that that might have been the last hit he has for some time after that. Yeah, you're right. So he does Urban Cowboy in 80, blew out in 81, then follows that up with Staying Alive in 1983, that is one of the worst American movies ever made. <laughs> Which so, never, did, the great thing about the Saturday Night Fever franchise is it has one of the great American movies and it has one of the bad American movies. <laughs> did 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 your parents take you to that one in the theater? Yes, I'm sorry, I was taking a drink, but yes, I did go see that in the theater. Wow. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, I yeah, I remember that experience. I, I mean, John Travolta. My parents love John Travolta too. And so mm-hmm. if, if you look at the movies that were coming out in the eighties with like that one and perfect and some of the, the crud, he was, they were terrible. Two of a kind. I saw two of a kind in the theater and I saw perfect in the theater as well. Yeah. I think I have the 45 single that Tim, that Olivia John did for two of a kind, but uh, oh, it's, it's a dreadful movie. Two of a kind. Is. It is dreadful. I, and you know, he has a little bit of a resurgence in late eighties with the look who look who's talking films. There yeah. were two of those, but it wasn't until 94 where he comes back on the scene with your film, Brad, Pulp Fiction. Yes, he does. Yeah. Vincent Vega. And yeah. then he has a really nice string. He has a nice run through he, some of the 90s. He does. He has a nice run through the 90s. He, he he usually has a good one, bad one sort of thing. So, you know, he goes get shorty, but he also does like Michael and Phenomenon. Yeah. Um, Which I like those, but uh, yeah. I know they're not great, but my love of Travolta probably carries a lot of weight with that. Yeah, but then he yeah, get, like get shorty's Arrow. amazing. Yeah, yeah, Broken Arrow. I just talked about Broken Arrow on another show that I do. <laughs> that, that <laughs> and, uh, you're allowed to say the name. You don't have to. Yeah. Like, Peter Bush. Yeah. Well, we got we got face off coming off soon. Uh, coming off soon. Coming on soon to our show. Their so, faces do come off. Yeah, their yeah. faces do come off. Well, yeah, Travolta and, uh, turns into so an we action about star. Yeah, he yeah. mid nineties. He he transitions into an action star. He even does uh, that one film from Russia, not from Russia with Love, but. You know what I'm talking about. Um, when Liam Neeson was coming out with the Taken films, Travolta shaves his head. and Oh, yeah. What is that movie called? From Paris with Love. From Paris with Love. Yeah. Something oh, like that. Oh, yeah. So, which, is, which is ridiculous, but I quite enjoy it. it I, I think it's a lot of fun. Um, yeah. You know, he, he also has movies in his career like 2000's Battlefield Earth. <laughs> which I'm sure you guys are going to talk about at some oh. point. <laughs> you know, we have to. It's, uh, I think that like that, that is almost tailor made for your show. I think it is, <laughs> but no, Tra- Travolta, he's, he's he t- I do remember the remake of Taking Pelham One, Two, Three. He tells some guy to lick his bunghole. I remember that specifically because I was yeah. like, they, they just said that in a major yeah. motion picture, yeah, yeah. 
He's yeah. he's a fascinating actor. I, I name another one that has gone through that trajectory where he starts out so strong, then just falls off in terms of quality, comes back, has a great string, then kind of goes into obscurity again. I mean, yeah. this guy is a roller yeah. coaster ride in terms of his He really on. is. And I, I feel I, I really hate it for him because I think he's really, really talented and I think he does a really great job when he's in the right material. Uh I recently watched one he did where he plays a NASCAR driver called trading paint oh boy and uh, uh <laughs> oh it's brutal it's uh it's brutal he's using a southern accent oh uh, boy it's basically days of thunder you know it's a riff on days of thunder it's 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 rough it might be a cult movie one day because it's that rough he's uh, he's not afraid to cash a paycheck man no he's not and i, I will say his his when he did the the people versus oj simpson i think he was robert shapiro Mm-hmm. He was really good in that show. Yeah. Um, so he, yeah, like you're saying, like he can do good stuff. Yeah. Um, he has to know, have the material. He's not yeah. one of those actors who, he's not like Jack Nicholson to me, who can be in a bad movie, but Jack's still great. Uh, if true. Travolta yeah. gets bad yeah. material, then Travolta's bad. <laughs> <laughs> he will, he has put on some weight because he has eaten a lot of scenery. Yeah. Uh, that's true. Um, next on the list is Nancy Allen, which I adore um, from the early 80s. So at, at this time period from 79 to 84 and Blowout, you know, came out in 81. She was married to director Brian De Palma at this time. Um, she comes on the scene in 1973, speaking of Jack Nicholson in a Jack Nicholson film, The Last Detail. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carrie in 76. So that's the first time she works with Travolta. I want to hold your hand in 78, but I first recognized her from a film that we will talk about. I absolutely love it. It's 1979's 1941, Steven Spielberg's 1941. So that's the movie for some reason. I just always remember Nancy Allen from, and of course she's working with De Palma again in 1980's Dressed to Kill, does Blowout. Uh, Philadelphia Experiment is another film that I kind of grew up on and uh, really enjoyed her in. And of course, 1987's RoboCop. I mean, come on. I, I, Nancy Allen was, I don't know. I, I wish she did more action films because I loved her in the RoboCop series. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. That's she where is, that starts with me. She yeah. is such an awful person in Carrie. <laughs> she is. She's oh such my a great, God. She's such a great actress because if you look at the range of stuff that she's done, yeah. I, mean, I mean, even say what you will about Poltergeist three in 88. I, I, I still like her in it. I mean, she's just one of those actresses immediately she's into uh, a film she's she's picking different roles um she can play somebody who's very ditzy but she can play you know somebody tough oh, yeah. um yeah but she's got range man i mean she's she really does i, I really she's, she's wish almost she had done uh, more. she's almost obnoxiously ditzy in this movie yes in blowout but it, it works for the character and she's really good and there's some kind of innocence to this character that really kind of tugs at the heartstrings. <laughs> okay. Well, the, the last two people I want to mention, one of these we've already talked about ad nauseum before. John Lithgow plays Burke in the film, um, our heavy. Go back and listen to The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai. That's right, yes. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> monkey boy, that's his line from there. But Obsession, he worked with De Palma in, in 76. He did Blowout. He also worked with De Palma again in Raising Cane in 1992. So if you want to see another great John Lithgow performance, just sort of off the rails, go check out Raising Cane. And then last but not least, we have Dennis Franz, which was another sort of contributor um, or actor in De Palma films. He was in The Fury in 1978, Dressed to Kill in 1980, Blowout in 81, Scarface in 83, Body Double in 84. So De Palma used him a lot. 
And then, you know, at some point, Franz um, kind of transitions over into the TV world. And I think most people would know him from NYPD Blue, which still shocks me. I mean, that series ran from 1993 to 2005. That was a yes. long-running series. He's still probably getting checks from that show. He can yeah. supersize his meal at McDonald's anytime he wants off those residuals. And he walked away. He uh, yeah. After that show, he walked away. He's not done anything since. Um, he's, he's so good. I mean, I have, I've only seen, I think the first two seasons of NYPD blue. I need to go back and read it, but man, talk about an amazing first two seasons of television. They're yeah, really yeah. good. He's a great actor and Lithgow is too. Both those guys are great actors. I think John Lithgow is one of the most versatile actors of all time. He can do comedy. He can do straight up horror. He can do, he can do anything. I don't think I've ever seen him fail. Well, I'm not going to say that, but he, he's done he, a lot uh, of roles, but you're right. I mean, he is a chameleon on screen. Yeah. Man. yeah. He's like a, he's a great character actor, but he can also do the leading part. He can do it. He can do it all. Yeah, I agree. So before we get into thoughts on film, I, I think it's important to kind of level set. So we're talking about a film from 1981. We're talking about Brian De Palma. This is a thriller. It's a Hitchcockian, uh, you know, Argento-ish thriller but it's also a political thriller. So it is borrowing heavily from a couple of incidents that have happened within our history. And, and what I think is funny is as crazy as the times have been lately and how people are like, oh my God, look at our political system and look at all the scandal and the controversy. Guys, go back to the late 60s and early 70s. Yeah. Um, we don't have anything on the stuff that was going on back then, in my opinion. But there, there are a couple of things that we probably need to do a quick history lesson refresher on because De Palma is touching these thematically um, within blowout. So the first one is the John F. Kennedy assassination that occurred on November 22nd, 1963. And the important thing about that is the Zapruder film. So that was the eight millimeter film captured on a Bell and Howell camera. And what's just what you need to know about this is back in 1963 and it wasn't maybe a week after the assassination i think it was time magazine ran 31 of the 486 frames of the zapruder film within their magazine so you could go through and see these 31 frames of the assassination and people were studying those like crazy i mean it yeah. it it was huge yeah so that becomes um, inspiration for what John Travolta kind of does as a character within this film as well. The other thing that De Palma is very much aware of and speaking to um, is the Chappaquiddick incident from July 18th to July 19th of 1969. So this one's pretty fascinating. A crash was caused by Senator Edward M. Kennedy. So Ted Kennedy is what he's known as. Um, but it was his negligence, negligence in driving that resulted in the death of his 28-year-old passenger who was trapped inside the vehicle. So Ted Kennedy is crossing a bridge, applies his brakes, loses control of the car. The vehicle launches over the southern end of the bridge, plunges nose first into hey, the bridge. I cannot stop this car. Sorry. Yeah, flips <laughs> over. Um, then Ted Kennedy gets out of the car, swims like 500 feet across the channel, yeah. And then Which just is goes, impress, impressive, by the way. Yes. That's impressive. Um, and then just goes back to his hotel room, gets cleaned up, has breakfast, is talking with everybody. 
Um, the next morning, a man and 15-year-old boy went fishing and discovered the submerged car shortly after about 8 a.m. the next morning. So after he wrecks his car, this lady dies in it. He swims the channel, goes back to his hotel room, doesn't tell anybody about it, and just goes along with his day. He's having breakfast, meeting with everybody. Is that the definition of privilege? <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes, it is. So Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Out of it still all, blows my mind. It, to this day, it yeah. still blows my mind that he just was like, oh, that sucks. I'm going to go over here. Yeah. And then, you know, <laughs> it's like, and he wouldn't dude, have did said you not remember there was somebody in the car with you? Yeah. And he wouldn't have said anything about it had, you know, they not found the car and reported, et cetera. So yeah, there's this whole exactly. controversy. I around she it. was dead when I found her. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's this whole controversy. And then what ends up happening is, you know, Ted Kennedy pleads guilty to a charge of leaving the scene of an accident. And this, this freaking blows my mind and receives a two month suspended jail sentence. So it doesn't even go to jail. No, that Sammy, that's your privilege right there. Yeah. 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 Then oh, it, it continues for Ted Kennedy's whole career. <laughs> yeah. So grand jury convenes, um, on April 6th, 1970 after looking into this and returns no indictments on top of that. Nuts. Insane. Insane. And I agree with Detroit. People think that you know, we're going through turmoil now. Uh, politics in America have been in turmoil for some time. Yeah. Uh, we're still a very young country. I think we I think uh, we forget that sometimes. Yeah. So you've got these incidents that happened in 63 and 69 that are making the headlines. It's influencing everything. Right. And then the Watergate scandal from 72 to 74. So that's happening as well. So that that's what's going on in the political landscape that De Palma is obviously paying attention to. And, yeah. and make no mistake. You guys know, you know that he's fascinated with that stuff, right? Yeah, I was going to say, make make no mistake. De Palma loves politics and he loves sort of, he, he will weave his political thoughts and statements within his film. He's been doing yeah. that for a while. So Blowout is a, is a great example of it because he's specifically kind of referencing, you know, these three aspects of American history. Then there's two other films that, you know, we'll talk about too after we talk about Blowout, but they are influencing one in particular, and it's 1966's Blow Up. So I had never seen that until this week. Sammy, you've seen it before? Yeah, I've seen it before. Okay, Brad, have you seen Blow Up? Never seen it. Okay. Nope. I had always heard about this film as it being sort of important um, for the late 60s, and it was important for a lot of filmmakers in that time too. But man, it influenced a lot. It influenced Francis Ford Coppola, who ended up making The Conversation in 1974, which I'm sure influenced Brian De Palma to some degree. But those are two movies, and specifically Blow Up. Um, Blow Out is, it's not a remake of that film, but again, he's borrowing from that film, plus he's borrowing from these three incidents to make the story of um, Blow Out. So right. is Blow Up, is the guy putting... Is he using sound in that or pictures? pictures. Is he a photographer in that one? Yeah. Okay. He's so a, the blow up is to blow up the image. Okay. To, yep. uh, to improve the image. And well, I don't I know. I saw Blade Runner. I know how it works. You yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to get into spoilers for blow up because you haven't seen it. And maybe you will at some point. No, uh, yeah, yeah. But it's it's basically the blowing up of the image. And, and then it leads to all these questions. But it's kind of like the it's an it's it's in converse to the scene of him putting the, the pictures together in this and that. You know, he sees something and then the other guy's like, well, I don't, I mean, that could be anything. And, you know, it, it's like that. Yeah we'll, yeah. we'll talk a little bit. I do <laughs> want to talk about blow up. Um, if you haven't seen it, Brad, then, then Sammy, I'm curious on some of your thoughts because 
it was super interesting to visit De Palma in 81 and then go back and watch these other films that came before it. Um, so I'm sure we'll share some thoughts, but I really, I've been dying ever since, um, Cameron and I sat down to watch this because Cameron hadn't seen it either. Um, and I'll share his thoughts and his reaction to it, but I'm, I've been dying to kind of talk about this film, especially with you two and to talk about De Palma in general, but Sammy, I want to talk with you first and, and kind of give you a shot at this. So your initial impressions before we do any deep dive in terms of performances or, you know, De Palma's camera work, et cetera. What do you think about Blowout? I mean, what, what's your reaction to it? This is, I don't know how many times you've seen it before, but you, you sat down and watched it this week. I mean, did you like it? Yeah. Did you get bored with it? Uh, no, I did not. Uh, this continues to be, for me, the culmination of everything Brian De Palma was doing in the 70s. This is, for me, the apex moment for him. Uh, I think this is his best film. Um, I think it's it puts all of his... To Palma isms all together in a neat little package. And I do think it's well directed, well lit, well edited, edited, <laughs> never easy to say that word. And uh, well, I mean, everything, the score works, everything works for me. Now I'm not saying that it doesn't have flaws, but to this day, this is one of the few movies that I've seen this many times that I can watch all the way through every time I sit down and watch it. Um, it's got a nice running time. It just, it works for me. And for me, it is the De Palma movie. Wow. It is the one that I always say, people say, well, I've never really watched any Brian De Palma movies. And I'll say, well, you can start here, but when you get to this point, this is an apex moment. This is a moment when things change, in my opinion. Like he never, he never quite reaches those heights again for me. And before that, he had tried and he had came close. But I think that blowout is that is that moment. So this is the best film in his entire filmography, in your opinion. It is easily for me, my favorite Brian De Palma film. Yes. Wow. Okay. So thumbs up from Sammy. All right, Brad. First time watch from you. Tarantino loves it. What, what yeah. are your thoughts? So on I, I have to love it by default, right? You have right? to love it by default. So <laughs> well, we already know it's a thumbs up. But how big of a thumb are you giving it? No. So, so I, I will say... The, the movie, I, I do enjoy this movie. Um, I, I will say it is one of those things where it, one of my things I hate most about movies that they do is start out with a fake movie uh, because you're setting, you're setting a tone and then you immediately <laughs> kind of shift that tone. Um, um, and I want to see that slasher movie, I think, more than uh, – <laughs> you get creepy to Palma pretty early in this movie, which – Oh, sleazy, what, yeah. What, Let's let's just go ahead. Brian De Crop, Brian De Palma is a creep. Like, look at the first shots of Carrie and tell me that guy's not a creep. Like, come on, he's a creep, but it's okay. He could be a creep, whatever. He's a, he's a lingerer. Yes, yeah. yeah, he's very voyeuristic. Uh, anyway, um, but I think you know Travolta. You're in with him. Um, it's funny to bring up like the conversation Harry in that movie. You know, he is basically the audience in that movie is discovering things as as Harry is discovering in the conversation Um, here. It's a little bit different because we we kind of get some information that Travolta doesn't have at some points. um, Jack doesn't have. But I I do really like his sort of tenacity and the way that he is trying to undo a wrong, a, a thing that went wrong that he is trying to 
desperately correct by doing it again. And like his obsession with that and his obsession with trying to discover what is going on. Um, you know, I think there's some loose strings that don't really get tied up. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I really don't care. I will say I hate the ending of this movie um, very much so. And um, I think it doesn't ruin the film for me, but it really left a sour taste in my mouth. But besides that, I think, you know, this is driven by Travolta. And I think, Sammy, I'm going to disagree. I think Nancy Allen is atrocious in this movie. She's almost <laughs> damn near unwatchable. The airheadedness sort of aloof sort of like characteristics uh-huh. is when she and John Lithgow are walking together under the subway. It, she just is like so dumb that like <laughs> she should be in an Adam Sane and Bridget and Fraser movie like airheads. But anyway, um, you know, I, I just, I, I don't like that. And I think she's atrocious. She has a moment where she's kind of explaining herself as a character and you're like, Oh, they're going to develop this character. Uh-huh. And then they immediately kind of try to like, take that back and you know she's also like dude tries to rape her and you're just like god this is just this character is just a nobody is a nothing um but with all my gripes the story is really compelling um and it goes in really cool places i love seeing people uh splice together uh videotape and audio tape and all that stuff like i love seeing that old school sort of splicing things together. I never worked in theater where I had to, you know, learn to project or anything like that, but I'm fascinated by it. And and I got that in here. And again, one of the best shots I've ever seen in cinema is that 360 shot in his studio. Like I am blown away by that. It's such a cool shot uh, that I'll always remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm in agreement with both of you. I, I love the premise and I love a character's line that sort of sums it up. And he's telling John Travolta, you're the ear witness to an assassination. So not an eyewitness, he's an ear witness. And, and that's sort of the gimmick. And I absolutely love it, how they play that out. This has been, um, and I, I think it still is. <laughs> so Sammy, you say it's your favorite Brian De Palma film. When I watch this, it's mine. But then I'll go back and watch The Untouchables and go, oh, wait, that's my favorite. So yeah, I know you're not supposed to have two number ones because that's an 11. <laughs> but... I I have a tough time deciding if De Palma hit his apex with the Untouchables, or he hit it with this one. But I really love this film. It's it's my favorite of his filmography, right next to the Untouchables. Yeah, and I uh, well I think this is the best De Palma film. I just don't think the Untouchables. I think there's De Palma moments in it. I just think it's a really well done movie by a very talented director, but I don't feel like it's a De Palma movie so much. Yeah. I mean, we can debate that till the cows come home, but I actually think we there's can. a, a ton <laughs> of stuff in Untouchables that make it a De Palma film, but I, I get that. Like, I feel like this one, obviously it's his screenplay. He has more controlling elements in it from a director and, and writer versus what he had in Untouchables. But if you're talking about, Hey, look at his filmography. What are your two favorite De Palma films or what's your favorite one? Depending on which one I watch, it's like, oh, it's Blowout. Oh, wait, it's Untouchables. So yeah, yeah. I, I love this film. And I, I love the fact that De Palma is borrowing heavily from other sources to create his conspiracy film. Um, I, I love that it has these nods to what was going on from a political history aspect, but also from a cinema history aspect, be it, you know, Blow Up or, you know, Hitchcock or, you know, anything that was happening from Italian cinema with their giallos. 
the camera work and we'll probably start there from a discussion point, I think is fantastic. I love the use of sound in this film, especially you, you got a movie about a sound guy who's trying to solve a murder or an assassination and they do some amazing things with the sound work here. Uh, and I, I don't know, Brad, I, I kind of like where this movie starts. I love movies about making movies when it is actually sort of a big integral part of the story. And I think this is one of the best ones out there. So it does a really good job with, you know, taking somebody who works in the film industry and then using them for the purposes of this. And and I love that aspect of it. I like the, uh, the, the scream is a great moment. Oh, it's hilarious. Yeah. And then they do it again. And the way Travolta laughs is the way I would laugh. (laughs) The way that they reacts when he kind of gets ripped. He's like, okay, new wind, new wind. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's just like that seems like the conversation people would have on low budget movie making. Okay, new wind, man. We'll get. I'll get new wind. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I do want to start our discussion, and we'll we'll go in depth about performances because we're going to have to debate this Nancy Allen thing because we've got one person <laughs> who says she's good, one person says she's terrible. So we'll get to that. One. Down, yeah. yeah. I got. Um, well, I got to ask about the ending too. Uh, we got to debate that too because I don't know. I don't know if Brad means the sequence or just where the yeah. story ends up? and and we got it we got to talk but let's let's talk about de palma the de palma isms or whatever but specifically his trademark in this film is the split screen which is caused by a split diopter lens so it's a split focus so a diopter lens just for anybody who doesn't know if if you have a a camera and you have its lens on there what you're doing is you're putting a second lens on top of that, but that second lens, half of it's missing. So the primary lens is is kind of looking through that missing part of the second lens, and then your second lens has a different focal point. So what you end up getting on screen is you get what should be a faraway shot and a close-up shot. One of those should be out of focus based on aperture. But when you use a diopter lens or a split focus, then your faraway shot and your near shot end up being both in focus so you see what's happening, right? So that's something De Palma uses quite a bit. And then he also uses the tracking shot. So when we talk about De Palma and sort of his film style, those are sort of three things that end up occurring is you get a traditional split screen. So that's basically, you know, the the frame is split in half and something's happening on the left, something's happening on the right. You also get a split screen effect through the split focus but that's a different type of split screen that's happening and you get the tracking shot. So I want to start with the split diopter lens shots, which are the palms. There's 15 of them in this film. What do you think about that style of filmography? Because one of the movies we just watched recently, all three of us was Zack Snyder's army of the dead. And, and to give everybody a comparison, if you've seen army of the dead, Jose, I'm looking at you. Um, <laughs> it's a terrible film. But one of the reasons why it's a terrible film is because you have these shots where Zack Snyder has something in focus and it might be the the foreground, uh, might be the background, something of that nature, but everything else is out of focus. Or in some cases, the whole damn thing's out of focus. De Palma is, is basically using these shots where everything's in focus regardless of depth of field. Um, what, what do you guys think about that? I, I mean, the... As someone who doesn't have an eye for using a camera or anything like that, I can appreciate the time and effort it takes to stage a shot like that. Um, 
and, and it's fascinating because you say there's 15 of them and I'm trying to go back and remember which ones they were. And it's like to the point where I can't remember all of the, obviously I can't remember all of them, but it's like, they're so good that they, you don't even really think about it until someone says what's going on. And then you're like, Oh, that's what's happening. Like you're not supposed to have two things in focus in a camera like that at the same time. And like they did it and it looks so good that I, my brain didn't even like put it together that that's not how, you know, like images work. Um, so it's, it's crazy that um, they could put these shots together and to me, as someone who is an idiot when it comes to this stuff, can appreciate it, but also I think it's second nature when you see it. So I, the camera work on this movie is grade A. Yeah. Uh, the split diopter, I've always enjoyed that. It's a very 70s thing, very 70s, kind of bleeds into the 80s. I uh, don't know if a lot of directors really use it anymore. I'm trying to think of anybody that might. It seems like Wes Anderson might maybe. I don't know. I It's it's used a lot in horror movies, I notice, um, more yeah. recently. Because you do get a, here's what's going on in the background. And then maybe you, you have something kind of happening um, in the foreground. And it really makes a kind of, oh, the, the boogeyman's coming around the corner. And so you want to see him coming around the corner while you see the reaction of your protagonist or something of that nature. So... I do find it used, but it it only looks really good, to your point, Brad, if they line that focal point, that transition with another line within what they're photographing. So right. a, a great example is there's this amazing scene. John Lithgow is looking at a picture of Nancy Allen, and he's scoping out um, you know, this whole mall area, uh, and you've got escalators and everything else. So where the focus shifts actually lines up with a line that's happening within that building structure. And so you get these sort of close-ups that start happening within each one, but because the line is right there, your your eyes don't find, find it jarring. It's just naturally going into the picture within three steps of focus, but then you got three steps of focus going to the escalator to see the person that he's looking at. It's so unique and visual, but it's one of those that could easily mess up and be jarring if you don't line that thing up. And and I do see it used in horror films today. And and you know when it's happening, and sometimes it's jarring. But man, De Palma gets it so right in some of these setups. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The only other director I think that uses it well in that era that I can think of off the top of my head is John Carpenter because he uses it. Yeah. On. And then of course I don't know if you, you didn't bring it up, but you know this thing shot in the beginning with Steadicam, and Steadicam hits the scene just a couple of years before. And uh, there's actually a featurette on that uh, Blu-ray that we all have with Garrett Brown, I think, and talking about working with Kubrick and how he's a perfectionist. And then <sighs> the Palma wanted him to actually show him moving like he didn't have a steady cam, like the opening of Halloween. If you see the opening of Halloween, there's no steady cam at that point. That's somebody carrying a camera. Right. And you can see him going up the steps and you can see the camera going up the steps. But in the opening of this, he wanted that same effect. He wanted that cheap horror film. I don't know if he's making a comment on Halloween or not, but <laughs> he wanted that effect of, hey, this is somebody with a camera. Watch this. Yeah, and this was the first film that De Palma used the Steadicam. Um, Garrett Brown invented the Steadicam. He actually did the shot of the opening sequence of the horror film. So yep. the pre-credit sequence with the goofy horror movie, the POV shot, that's Garrett Brown with the Steadicam portion. But De Palma is just getting introduced to Steadicam for these tracking shots. Um, and, and again, there are so many complex shots within this that just kind of blow my mind. 
not just the diopter effect, but if you're talking about tracking shots, you've got Lithgow is killing um, this first woman at construction site and the camera moves up from that sequence and over and catches Nancy Allen uh, Allen walking around the corner. Um, That shot is just gorgeous to look at, but you know it's super complex to set it up and get the timing right because she has to be coming around the corner just at the moment that the camera's coming up from what John Lithgow's doing. It's super impressive. But you've got a combination of De Palma using all of these techniques and, and film styles and really just tells this beautiful visual like thriller. Yeah. That is the De Palma style to me. The De Palma style to me is these elaborate setups. Uh, if I think about dress to kill with the museum, I think about um, casualties of war when he pulls up uh, with a big dolly. Yeah. During the scene. I mean, every time I think of De Palma, I think about, or even raising Kane, a movie that we kind of joked about is kind of crazy. There is a super elaborate hotel climax. Oh, scene. Yes. It's so good. And, and everything has to be timed just right. And it's almost all like one shot. It's not, but it it's the way he shoots it and everything. So that's that's the big time De Palmaism I always think of is these elaborate moments. And it wasn't until I saw I had the Blu-ray, by the way. I want to say this. I want to admit this on the air. It wasn't until I saw Blowout in high definition that I ever noticed when that car goes off the bridge, that when he runs to jump in the water, there's somebody right there at the edge that runs up on the bridge and runs away. Oh yeah. Yeah. You, I had never seen it. that on oh, VHS. <laughs> I couldn't see that. <laughs> well, De Palma does a, he's, he has that sequence, but then he makes sure to kind of pan back to that. So you see the guy running across the bridge yeah. if you yeah. were not paying attention. So no. th- this is a great film to kind of under watch multiple times and kind of go, what's going on in the background as much as, cause everything's in focus. He's showing you everything. Right. Did they right. ever say who that guy was? That Is was the guy shooting the video. That was Dennis Franz. So that was okay. the guy who was filming. Okay. Yeah. And, and Brad, you, you talked about this scene a little bit. So you've got these big elaborate sequences where De Palma is using these techniques, but De Palma also uses them in these very simple exchanges and probably, um, I, I want to say it's, it's my favorite diopter shot. It is in the hospital when Travolta is looking at what's going on with the commotion and what's happening in the background is you have, I think the governor's assistant talking to the detective and they're talking about John Travolta and Travolta is kind of listening to them, but trying to pay attention to what's going on. And then you see him point to Travolta and then signal him over. And just the way that that is framed. And when the, when the cop kind of points to him and signals him over, it's just, it makes you feel like you're right there. Like the cop is pointing to you to walk over and it really puts you in that moment or the scene, but it's, it's just a minor scene. He's using the split focus, but man, talk about making the viewer feel immersive within that chaos. It works so well. I have a note on the hospital smoking cigarettes in a hospital question mark. Is that a thing? Like, were you allowed to do that in the eighties? Come on guys. Brad, your your youth sometimes makes me, (laughs) I yearn to be so young and innocent. (laughs) He was just smoking a cigarette in the hospital. I'm like, it would be, uh, I'm I'm pretty sure I remember my mom smoking a cigarette while she was giving birth to my brother. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Wow. The (laughs) seventies. It was a special time. It was. Well, so there's another tracking shot, which again, you wouldn't think that there would be a complex tracking shot in an apartment, 
But when Nancy, you know, Dennis Franz is kind of cleaning up his apartment, he's trying to get things straightened up, and there's this tracking shot over to the door, then Nancy Allen comes in. Again, there, there's not an edit that's happening. They have to do that entire sequence. Yeah. Who knows how many times they shot it. But again, it the camera moves, and it really... I, if done correctly, it really makes you feel like you're in that dingy, red-lit apartment with them, and it is incredibly immersive. So yeah. I, I think De Palma, in this film, does a fantastic job of using these camera techniques or these tracking shots and makes the viewer feel extremely immersive, whereas most filmmakers will use an elaborate tracking shot just to show that they can do it. But it, it right. really doesn't pull you into the story or pull you into that environment the way that this film does. Yeah, I should say, you know, for our the cross-pollination of GGTMC listeners that might come over and listen to me on the show, and I hope it's a bunch of you. Um, hey, stick around. Yeah, stick the around. 50, 50 minutes, the 50-minute mark, uh, not only do you get the J&B bottle, but it's also a reminder that De Palma has seen Italian horror movies. Oh, yeah, that's right. Because <laughs> it's quite prominent. It's right there on the table. It is the biggest bottle on the table, and it clearly is a J&B Scotch whiskey bottle. So <laughs> don't tell me this guy didn't watch European horror films. <laughs> I, I did want to say, Troy, on, on your tracking shots, it's always fascinating to me to do a tracking shot in a confined space. You know, like tracking shots down a hallway, like that, that's not, not that difficult. But like in that apartment, that apartment is basically jail cell size yes. like it is tiny and they have that cool tracking shot and that to me is like it, it gives you the whole space and the whole layout just in that one shot um yeah I, I just think those are that's a cool shot in that confined space you get you get some amazing slow motion tracking shots towards the end with travolta kind of running through the crowds going up the steps etc with the fireworks in the background visually this movie I think is pretty amazing. There, there are some sequences and scenes that not just the diopter focus and, and all the other stuff, but uh, Travolta is sitting in a hotel room with a pencil. And this is where the editing really comes in on top of the great visualizations, but trying to recreate what he saw with the pencil pointing in different directions and piecing together that mystery. I think that's a fantastic sequence. Mm -hmm. um, you talked about this, Brad. I, I, this is one of my favorite parts of the film. The, the editing of the film or the the pictures out of the magazine and then trying to sync up the film to it, you see this entire process and it's very meticulous. And I find it super fascinating in terms of yeah. how they would do that um, pre-computers. Um, yeah. the, there, there are two shots in here that my jaw drops. The first one is a bit heartbreaking but it's Nancy Allen screaming for Travolta with the American flag in the background. That whole image and sequence is so striking. Um, and then the sequence that I, I just, I literally saw Cameron's eyes just pop out of his head. Um, and it leads into the discussion of the sound design. And you've talked about this, Brad, the camera spinning around Travolta while he's playing all of these erased tapes and kind of syncing everything up. You get this swirling imagery with this unique sound design of, you know, this low hum or these bumps because these tapes have been erased. And I, it was the moment I kind of look over at Cameron and he just kind of shifts in his seat, getting closer to the screen. Uh, and when I asked him, I'm like, what did you think about this film? He's like, I, I absolutely love this film. I cannot, oh, well, how did they do that whole sequence with the room spinning? That was the thing <laughs> that literally he just couldn't wrap his head around and thought it was yeah. like the, the centerpiece of the film. 
to be fair, he just got his wisdom teeth out, so he's high <laughs> as a kite too. Watching this movie, so. that's true. Yeah, he, <laughs> he, he was on some uh, good drugs. Well, I, th- I think you know what we're talking about though is kind of the criticism of Brian De Palma in a lot of ways, right? He's always been interested in the tech technical aspect of making movies, and not so much always the the story or sometimes the emotional impact. Although I think he nails it more often than people give him credit for. Oh, I agree. I think the technical aspects of his filmmaking, his obsession, and for those who don't know, Brian De Palma is obsessed with gadgets in real life. Like he is, he's a big time computer buff. He's a big time, uh, he's into, he loves video games. He loves gadgets and technology. He loves that stuff. Like he lives for it. And uh, cameras, all that kind of stuff. So his obsession with gadgets and toys and things like that, it always kind of shows up in his movies somewhere. And that editing scene, that scene with the sinking of the sound and everything else, you can totally tell, like, he's getting off shooting that. I mean, to me, that's what it feels like. It's like, oh, man, I'm I'm shooting what I know. I know what I'm doing. And you know, it's just he, like a moment he, like he's that. He's done that sequence before, like in Carrie, where they're yeah. spinning around it. This one, obviously, from a different angle. Um, but, yeah, it, it works so well. But the thing mm-hmm. about De Palma is when when he hits, you're right. He, he's a very technical director and storyteller. And sometimes the the script, the plot, the performances aren't in sync with what he's doing from a camera perspective. But man, yep. this this film, it's the first time that it all comes together, I think, uh, where you go, okay, all of these things that he's doing with the camera, it's pulling you deeper and deeper into the story. Um, and, and you kind of talked about this, Brad. What I love about John Travolta's performance is it's likable. You relate to him. Um, the conversation, you feel a little cold towards Gene Hackman, even though you're supposed to be relating to him. It's hard to relate to Gene Hackman's level of paranoia, I think. Whereas uh, yeah. with Are you Tra- talking about in the conversation? In the conversation, right. Yeah. Whereas yeah. with this film, Travolta kind of brings you along and your level of paranoia starts to get heightened with his. But I think it's De Palma's camera work that is kind of, and the sound design that is bringing you into it because- I, as much as the camera work is amazing on this, I, I want to point out the sound, the sound design too, for a movie about a sound guy trying well, to solve. Yeah, a, I mean, yeah. come on. But but it's a movie <laughs> about a sound guy trying to solve a murder, and the film does a great job of playing with sound in each scene. Um, and and a great example is when Travolta is out on the bridge trying to get all these sound cues, like his wind and owl and frog and everything else. You hear this zip sound. You don't know where it's coming from, right? It's a zip. Zip, and he's he's trying to figure it out. It's in the bushes, etc. But that's a sound that's used throughout the rest of the film because it's John Lithgow kind of pulling this wire from his watch and letting it go. Yeah. And so it's that sound cue that starts building up all the tension. Um, and you discover, okay, John Lithgow is waiting in the bushes. You know, shot out the tire, etc. And you know that from just that little zip sound that he's making from that wire in his watch. But yeah, I, I yeah, mean, yeah. that sound design and, and those sound cues are just brilliant. Yeah, I feel like, too, that scene with the couple on the bridge, right, during that scene and everything else, like, that's Brian De Palma. Like, that's an autobiographical moment probably for him. <laughs> <laughs> watching people. Yeah, well, I guess he, uh, again, he's he was a obsessed with it. I mean, for those who don't know, I mean, this is a guy who investigated his own father who he thought was cheating on his mother and, and followed him around town with a camera. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, he's he's got issues. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and the other the other sound element, the uh, the opening slasher sequence, you you kind of learn a little bit about filmmaking because you hear this heartbeat, the breathing, the girls arguing, cheesy synth music, um, the, the lackluster scream, 
and then you hear the director say, okay, get rid of all the sound effects. And I just want to hear the scream and you hear that, but it, it's fantastic where you are getting this fantastic POV tracking shot with all these weird sound effects that are layered on top of it, which is a little bit disjointing. And then when you come out of that and you're seeing them making a film and you see them messing around with sound, it, it's a precursor of what's happening for the rest of the film. It, it's really cool how they do that. Um, let's talk. So can we all agree? We're going to talk about Nancy Allen, but John Travolta, I mean, yay, nay. I, I think awesome. He's awesome in this movie. Yeah. I, I think, um, I think that, you know, you brought up a hackman in the conversation, you know, that character obviously is a bit of a, a misanthrope and, uh, withdrawn kind of recluse anyway, but Travolta, how many locks he's got on his door. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But Travolta, Travolta is, you can say a lot of things about him, but he always has this kind of warmness to his kind of characters. I don't know what it is. He just seems like the kind of guy that I would like to hang out and like have a drink with to Dude, me. His smile. He just seems like a nice guy. Yeah. He has like the maybe best share smile a $5 ever. shake with maybe. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. I don't know if I'd share a needle with him, but yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> he flashes that smile. You don't know what you're going to do. Right. This, this is a good point, yes. He does say Jesus Christ in this movie, and it's literally the same Jesus Christ as he says when Mia is OD'd. And I was like, oh, my God, that's like the same Jesus Christ when he yells it. Really? Yeah. That's what you took out of that? Yeah, that's what I took from this movie. Did you go and play this? Were, were you doing a John Travolta blowout moment, and you're playing the Jesus Christ of blowout with the Jesus Christ of Pulp Fiction to compare it? Yeah. You joke. <laughs> see i can believe that what did you think of travolta's backstory with the wiretapping because that becomes sort of a critical piece of information and even a bit of foreshadowing does it work in terms of his character development i think so i think so i think it's a i think it's a one of some of the best performing he does in the movie i think there's a really good emotional beat at the end of that that felt real to me and john travolta's emotional beats don't always work for me because again all I think about is him smiling, you know, but to use a grease quote, you know how it is, Sandy rocking and rolling and whatnot. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I, I will agree with Sammy on that, except I don't get the logic behind why the battery would eat away at the guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yeah, Brad, so, I'm, I'm with you on that a little bit. That seems kind of weird to me, too. I'm like, oh, the guy's sweating. You, you didn't <laughs> think about maybe the guy's going to get nervous being in a car with two gangsters and. He might sweat in the battery. You know, I don't know. It, yeah. That's the only thing I was like, this logic is really, really far-fetched. That um, didn't bother yeah. me as much as when Travolta walked into the bathroom and the guy is strung up um, with the wire with these elaborate knots and noose and everything else. I'm like, it, it would have taken that guy much, much longer, A, to prop the body up, to do these complex knots both around the neck and on top of the bar that's holding it. And he was just in there for like a minute or two. Yeah, he was in and out. Yeah, I'm gonna say, <laughs> oh, there's a joke there. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna drop <laughs> that one. But the uh, <laughs> he's telling it in flashback, so it's a dream sequence. So you can for, forget, forget all that fancy not gibberish. <laughs> okay, 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 I'll give that. No, but it's an example. I understand of, what you're saying. Though. Yeah, the the plot points, but I'll say this: it doesn't de it doesn't detract from the film because. He's telling the story, and to your point, Sammy, you you really buy his his guilt over this whole thing, and mm -hmm. it's 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 obviously had an effect on him, and it it resonates towards the end of the film when he asks Nancy Allen to wear the wire and everything else because he's I don't know I I thought it was a a great little character moment. It's one of those examples of 
you're you're kind of having him describe an experience and they're showing everything that went through. But it to your point, it's how he's telling it and then his reaction after telling the story, it really works. I mean, it's he's fantastic in that. So Nancy Allen, huh? So Sammy. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, to me, she is playing. Obviously, she's playing a stereotype here, but okay. I think she does a really good job. I think if, if I'm going to be the future president of the United States, then if I'm going to cheat on my wife and be a bastardly uh, politician, I'm going to find the biggest dits I can find, maybe possibly the dumbest person I can find who will never open their mouth, hopefully, because she can barely get a word out. I, that's my argument. And I, but there's something childlike about her. And even though that kind of sounds creepy when yeah, I say it out loud, yeah, yeah, even me as goes like, Ugh. but you know, it's uh, it it's still it's that that's the innocence I'm talking about though. Like she she has big dreams. You know, he says the movies. Oh, I like movies. I like movies. Yeah, I like movies. Uh, you know, these little moments, and she just she felt like a real. Not that I'm around these type of people, these ladies of the night. But uh, she felt like a lady of the night to me. She felt like a girl who had accidentally gotten herself into a bad spot. And uh, this is what she has to do for a living now. And okay. she, she's obviously not a smart character. And I don't think she's supposed to be. I think she's, you know, I know it's not popular probably to say this, but she's supposed to be playing an idiot. And I think she does a pretty good job with it. So, Brad, that does that type of... I don't know of perspective influence you in any way. No, not at all. I because because here's my thing. If I mean to be a woman of the night, or to <laughs> yes, be a sex yes, Brad, worker, tell us tell us your go ahead. I'm, you have to have some street smarts because you're going to get in situations where you're going to be taken advantage of. You're going to be this. You're going to be that. You cannot. But I don't. I think she is being taken advantage. Like I, I get. She's not dead. But Dennis Franz is taking advantage of yes, her over maybe and over and financially, over Financially, her pimp essentially is taking advantage of her, but she's not so dumb. She's getting into situations where her life would be, you know, she would end her life because she made a bad decision with someone. She would, I feel like this person would be hardened enough to know that, um, you know, maybe not go down a dark subway with somebody, um, you know, with them walking behind you creepily while they put on gloves and a big overcoat. Like, I, I just, there's just things about her that I, I just feel like she didn't ever get her moment. Yeah. They they were trying, they get close to it. Like the makeup thing, like her and John Travolta have this relationship about movies. You know, they both sort of are in the movie thing and that never happens anything. And then she kind of starts telling her backstory and then they just kind of negate all that. And then, Oh yeah, by the way, we're going to rape her. And then by the way, she's going to be the damsel in distress at the end. So, you know, at the end of the day, she's just a plot device and that, and that's disappointing. I disagree. Like Beyond a hundred percent on on that. Look at one. her in RoboCop. She's a million times better in RoboCop. Well, she has a she different. But her hair's her hair's worse though. Her <laughs> hair is worse in RoboCop. <laughs> you I'll can't, give you that. Yes. Uh, you, me, we all have to be in agreement. That is the worst hairstyle she's ever had in a movie. I, I do agree with you there. But that's the thing I love about Nancy Allen. RoboCop. She plays this just tough badass, and and I mean, 
she's just a, a big a force of rec force to be reckoned with as robocop himself within that film and, and she you know she she can carry herself in that film in this one i'm kind of with sammy see to me the the ending of this film or the last third of it i don't think is effective unless you buy into her as a character so when I think about it, the first time she kind of opens her mouth and you hear her, she's apparently doped up on drugs. She's in the hospital and I don't know what to think of her. As a matter of fact, um, I would say um, it, <laughs> in the beginning of the film, I'm kind of on your side, Brad, where I'm like, wow, she's kind of annoying. I don't know what to think about her. But when you think about the context of her just you know, being doped up on medication and whatnot after this car accident, she starts to come out of that and you start to kind of see what kind of person she is. She is being used and taken advantage of by everybody. Um, she has some street, if she didn't have street smart, she wouldn't have like smacked the bottle on Dennis Franz. I, I think she's gullible. I think she's naive. I think everybody knows that about her and is using her for those. I mean, for all intent and purpose, Dennis Franz was trying, was okay with her dying as long as he got his pictures and everything else. I mean, she was being set up, but I think there's great chemistry between her and Travolta. I think she gives a heck of a performance. Um, and because of that, I think the ending resonates with me a little bit more. Like, you've really got to care about her in order for that ending to stick, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, I think that's where the childlike comic came from. To, to, uh, <laughs> to clarify. <laughs> to, to defend yourself. To defend myself. This is going on the internet. <laughs> um, yeah. But, uh, but here, let me let me say this: the first few times I seen blowout, and I can even remember this when I was a kid, and I didn't even understand what prostitution was uh, when I was that young. Well, I, I mean, I knew what the best little whorehouse in Texas was, right? Did you see that you in know, theater too? I, I did. I did several <laughs> times actually. I, I love that movie. Yeah, Burt Reynolds, man, <laughs> Dolly Parton. It's perfect. Anyway, that's that's another conversation for yep. another time. The 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 truth is when I first saw her the first time, and I wonder if this isn't something Brad might be, but the first couple of times I saw this movie, I really did not like her character at all. And as time has gone on, I've come to really appreciate that performance more and more. Um, and I think it is that I think it's just, <sighs> there's an emotional resonance to me with the end, which is why I kind of, asked that question, you know, did earlier and we'll get to it when we start talking about the ending here, but you know, is it the sequence or is it the emotional resonance that is lacking for Brad? And that's what I'm curious with. Well, before we get to the ending, can we talk about Lithgow and Fran? I mean, they're both pretty one dimensional, but I got to say, yeah. I, I mean, John Lithgow is pretty damn menacing. I love him. Yeah. He's uh, great. And He's great. He, he, <laughs> Dennis Franz, I don't know if anybody can play sleazy as well as he does in this film. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, now, I know this is probably not politically correct anymore, but seeing Dennis Franz wear a wife beater and, like, be a drunk, it's, like, just perfect. Like, well, perfect. It wasn't even a wife. It was a wife beater with all these stains on it, which I don't even know. Oh. Yeah. I mean, come on. Of course it's going to be dirty. Oh, Have you gross. seen that apartment? Yeah, yeah. That apartment was so gross. Um <laughs> The other character. It looks like the room I'm in right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. The other character. We'll do a tracking shot later. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, do you, do you guys consider the city of Philadelphia a character within the film? I, I got to say coming out to the East coast, going to Philadelphia a couple times. Cause you know, it's an hour away. I love that city. And I get so excited when I see this film now 
and watching where they go in the backdrop and especially that last part where you get sort of this I don't know you'd call it an action sequence but you get these fantastic overhead shots of you know his jeep or bronco or whatever kind of going through the crowds um I, I think they do a great job of using the locations within Philadelphia. It really kind of sets the attitude of it. Yeah. I, I, I think it's a character in the movie. I mean, I, I feel like it is. Um, I, I, when I think of Philadelphia, I think of two things, Rocky Balboa and uh, this movie. Oh, really? Wow. Okay. <laughs> no, well, I mean, that's not all I think of. I mean, Jesus. But I mean, I'm just, that movie-wise, that's what I think of. Dude, I think of Rocky running up the steps. Right. Yeah. I mean, we all think of that, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah. That crosses cheese, generations. Cheesesteak. Yeah. Well, I always think I think about cheesesteak here in Kentucky. Once you go to Philadelphia, I'm telling you, the food scene there is incredible. And I'm not talking about like the two places that ever the touristy cheesesteak. Pl- I've had somebody take me on like a cheese steak for an entire day. We're like, we're trying this cheesesteak and then we're going to this cheesesteak and do the cheesesteaks. And not even that, but reading terminal. I can sit here and do a podcast just on Philadelphia food alone. It's so yeah. good, but yeah, yeah I would listen. I would listen to it. I'm that kind oh, of a food person. God, it's so good. All right, I, I think it's, I do think it's a character though, and I think that last shot or that last sequence is a great kind of encapsulation of the city. And like, it might not make any geographical sense, but it's one of those things De Palma does so well. He is able to put a camera in a spot and get the most bang for his buck out of that's of a sequence. I mean, he did it in untouchables, right? With the the train station. So, which he's, you know, we didn't mention it, but he's actually riffing on Eisenstein, a Russian film back then, you know, doing that one. So, yeah. (laughs) Well, let's talk about the ending then. I'm curious. So how did you phrase the question, Sammy? I I, I'm curious too, because Uh, this ending, Brad said he didn't like the ending. And I, I wonder after listening to him talk about Nancy Allen, if it was the, uh, the ramifications of what happened there, or if it's just the sequence itself. It's, it's all of it actually. So the implausibility of the sequence itself, he drives through a parade, he crashes into a store and they have him in an ambulance and they, no cops around, nothing. If, if, if someone were to do that today, even in 81, I mean, you're getting arrested. Okay. You're, you're, you're in a cop car or at least when you're in the ambulance, there's cops around. So you cannot leave. So like the implausibility of him just being able to wander around <laughs> after literally like taking out police on horseback, um, you know, oh. driving through a parade and then through a store. Um, it, it, to me, it was like, okay, this guy is just able to go again. Let's just talk about privilege. All of a sudden, like he just gets to <laughs> get up and walk around. Yeah. Um, and, and then I, I guess the part where she is killed, like I'm okay with that part. It's the, I'm going to add her scream to the scream at the end. I felt was really offensive. Mm. Um, Troy, if you die on this podcast, I promise you I won't use that audio to like profit off of it. Um, yeah, right. You know, it's like, <laughs> I don't believe that <laughs> to me. I, I just, I feel like that's I, in really bad taste. And so like, if you care for someone, are you going to exploit them like that at the end? Yeah. So I, I do agree. That is tasteless. I, 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 I see your angle. I see where you're coming from. I, I think for me, the ending. So I'm about to get deep here. 
So for me, the ending, one of the interesting things about this movie, and we kind of talked about in the beginning with the, the idea of this movie being a bomb, because uh, it was financially a bomb. Um, I think by the time we get to 80, 81, uh, Americans in particular are done with the paranoid political thriller. I think uh, they don't really want to be involved in that anymore. They don't want to think anymore that their government is doing things behind their back. Um, well, because there's evidence that it, that it has. <laughs> well, we, yeah. let's just be honest. We're yeah. probably being listened to right now. All Absolutely. Three of us, okay? Yep. yep. Uh, so the truth is, what I like about the ending the most is I think the ending is a great metaphor for the way politics kind of hornswoggles the public. Let's throw a bunch of fireworks and pretty things in the air and everything else, but let's take care of business down here because they're all looking up there, but let's take care of everything down here. So let's do all the dirty work down here because this is what has to be done to remain in power. But if we hit them with enough pretty movies, pretty fireworks, pretty sales, uh, you know, criterion sale. If we hit them with enough of those things, right? They're going to totally Parts forget about half off sale. <laughs> They're going to totally forget about all the terrible things that are going on. And it's kind of a metaphor for all that. And for me, that's what works the most. I do think the scream aspect of it has to be it, it, it it's tasteless, but it fits within the confines of a Hitchcockian film or an Italian horror film to me. Um, it just seems ludicrous enough. Like I, I'd be amazed. I can't think off the top of my head if Dario Argento's done anything like this or not, but it feels like something he would do. Uh, it's certainly, you know, the Italians were kind of the, were some of the first ones on board with the kind of, you know, comment, you know, shooting the kind of, uh, what do you, what do they call that type of movie? Uh, the, uh, found footage type thing. Right. Uh, you know, and they were kind of early to that, uh, a little earlier than some other folks. And um, it just feels like a tasteless thing that an Italian film would do, uh, which when I think of Italian films, I think of gorgeous films. But I also think about the fact that they were never scared to go completely into the gutter if they had a chance to. And I feel like Travolta's life at that point and the choice his character makes, I mean, I think he's he's done. I think that character, I think what you see at the end of this movie is you see a guy that is completely, the system has won. And he's just like, you know what? Screw it. Just whatever, man. I'm done. I'm with you up to that part. I don't think he's saying screw it, whatever. I, 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 I'm, I'm with you on most things because that last part. So I, I get it, Brad. You've got somebody who's in this car, like that horse spill, dude, I, I gasp every time I see that horse get taken out. Oh, and, man. Yeah. Anytime a horse goes down pre like 86, I just have terrible thoughts. Yeah. yeah it's, same that way. horse is now glue, by the yeah. way. Yeah. So I think what's happening is De Palma is getting us into this frenzy of a typical Hollywood action ending where your hero at the last minute and then all of a sudden the car crashes. And at that point, De Palma is saying, okay, we're going into a different territory. And, we're, you know, from his perspective, he, he is probably still staying in the 70s political thriller. Now, take away for a second the fact that, um, you know what, <laughs> if, if a senator can drive off a bridge and uh, some lady dies and then he just, you know, 
goes back to his hotel room and all this other stuff goes down. I 100% believe in 81 John Travolta would cause all that mayhem and then the cops would be dealing with all the Philadelphia parade and everything else and he would get out of the ambulance and and try and go save Nancy Allen. I, I actually would find that kind of believable given what happens in reality today um, or even back then. But take that aside for a second and go, okay, that's just a... a a sloppy plot detail or execution in, ter- in terms of getting to the climax. To your point, Sammy, I think there's a lot of political metaphors happening in that last part. I mean, he frames Nancy Allen reaching out screaming in front of this big lit up uh, American flag, and she is yeah. being killed. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's not a mistake. They do it during a Fourth of July celebration or yeah, some type of li- it's a, or is it Liberty a, Bell celebration? Yeah, Liberty Bell. I think 100% De Palma is saying, yes, everybody is so concerned with um, the lights and the celebration yeah. and everything about democracy, but you are you are not paying attention to what's happening. And, you know, there there might be a metaphor there that he's basically saying, look, the government is slowly killing you and you're not even paying attention. So I yeah. think it's all there. But from an emotional story standpoint, I mean, my heart is breaking because these two have a connection he is reliving this incident that he's been beating himself up for years with that whole policing operation. He's watching it go down here. He runs up there. He ends up, you know, for, for everybody, obviously we're in spoiler territory here, but he kills John Lithgow. And then he's on this park bench while it's snowing, listening to this tape over and over again of her talking about going to New York, like the plans that she had. And, Mm. you know, he's beating himself up and listening to this audio tape but what's crazy? And then you should end it there. <laughs> no, I, I don't. No. I, I, so if you think about what's going on, because the news is happening in the background, the truth about the governor's death is never known. So everybody gets away with that. Lithgow dies, and everybody thinks he's just some Philadelphia serial killer. So they don't they don't even know anything about John Lithgow. I think the newscaster says we don't know anything about this guy, but he's the one killing all these young ladies in Philadelphia, right? To cover up the whole assassination thing. Travolta ends up solving a mystery that nobody cares about. I mean, the system literally beats him down and and just takes away everything that he has come to care about. And in his opinion, the only thing that he has left, and, and this is my interpretation, he can immortalize Nancy Allen's screen, her scream in a cheap horror film, and that's the only thing that he can do for her because nobody cares, everything's been hidden, the bad guys got away with it. He lost somebody that he was probably slowly falling in love with. And he's, and he feels responsible for it because he talked her into this whole plan. And so the only way that he can get anybody to hear her or even know her is to put her in a cheap schlocky horror film and use her scream. So I don't think it's exploitive. I think that's a guy who is saying, this is all I have left to kind of get the world to know who this person was that that's the only avenue he has because the government, everybody else took that away from him. They, they pretty much beat him down. So I agree up to a point, Sammy, to, to everything you're saying, except I don't think he just is like, well, I don't give a shit. I'm going to do this. I think he's saying, this is the only thing I have. And this is the only thing I can do because his reaction when, when the director is like, man, that's a great scream. I mean, he's crying and he's yeah. like, yeah, it, it, because he knows like that's all he can do for her. Yeah. Yeah, he says, "Great scream, great scream." Yeah, actually, I didn't really even think about it like that. That's a, it's an interesting, it but is, an interesting yeah. theory, uh, Troy. I gotta say, I mean, I don't know if I'm 100 on board with it, but I, I like, I like where your head's at. 
Well, it's just as many times as I've seen this film, I've seen this film a lot. And even the Criterion Blue, when it came out, I, I out of all the Criterion discs, I probably have watched this one the most, even more than, you know, the the Hong Kong films and stuff like that, because I, I really love this film. And I love this film because, um, to your point, Sammy, there are things that the first couple of times I watch it, I'm like, yeah, Nancy Allen kind of annoys me. But the more you watch it, you start to kind of understand I was introduced to this character at this point, and then you see how people are using her. And then if you start paying attention to the imagery, like what Nancy Allen's character is framed against, and then you get to that last sequence and how it plays out, he is really, I mean, De Palma is really trying to make a statement here. And it's not just, again, this whole political statement, but there's an entire emotional statement that goes along. And if you buy into her character and you know, think about the the music that's playing anytime Travolta and Alan are on screen uh, together. It it's a kind of a sorrowful tune. I, I mean, you get yeah. a sense yeah. that dread is coming because yeah. it it's not a sort of romantic riff. It is just this very. I'm I'm having a hard time to articulate this, but if you go and listen to the music when they're on screen together you kind of get depressed a little bit like, dude, I think something's coming. Like, I don't think there's a happy ending for these people. And sure enough, I mean, the music is there. The sound is there um, to, to kind of foreshadow that they have a doomed relationship. And when you look at his reaction in that screening room, when everybody's raving about how great this scream is and he's just filled with guilt, but at the same time, it's like, man, that's the only thing he can do for her. Like that's all that's, that's all she has left. So well, I think you've I think you've uh, said it very well, and you've got me thinking. You got me thinking, and that's what I that's what I like to do. <laughs> Look at this guy, this guy. You know, give me another excuse to watch Blowout again. <laughs> yeah, that was going to be my follow up. Like, how soon are you all going to? I mean, I know Troy, you guys have seen it way more than me, but I, I I'm kind of anxious to go back and, and see this again with a new set of eyes and a different set of perspective, and say okay, I can, maybe Nancy Allen isn't as bad as I think. And maybe the ending isn't as bad as I think, you know, I, I was a little bit joking about the the movie within a movie sort of deal. Cause I think yeah. this is done better than a lot of, a lot of other films. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but it, it, it's just always sort of weird to me to, it's like starting your, your film off in a dream. You're like, okay, so the, what I just saw doesn't really matter to the film. This one actually does have some sort of consequence. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm actually kind of anxious to go back and see this again. You know, I'll give it some time and then let it marinate a little bit and then go back and, and check it out. I What I think you should do is go, I, I'll say this, the thing that I was super excited I did do, and I know you haven't seen it, but watch this or uh, watch this first or watch the second, but watch it in conjunction with Blow Up. So you will understand how influential blow up was to filmmakers kind of making films in the seventies, especially. But I think De Palma is really, you know, blow up and and we can talk about this a little bit, but blow up is considered sort of a quintessential. Here's a protagonist within that film that sort of exemplifies maybe what sixties culture was about. And I think De Palma is taking that aspect of it and dragging it into 81 and again, if you if you know De Palma and you know he is still at that time period going nuts over the Kennedy assassination, he's going nuts over Ted Kennedy's, you know, what hap- how that whole played out, Watergate, everything else. 
his movie and what his characters are going through is very much a statement of what he's saying about society as much as it's a character development and a thriller and it works some of these films and i don't know how you guys feel some of these political thrillers i think they get the thrills right but the politics wrong or the politics right and the thrills wrong this is one of the few movies that they get both right and i think um whether or not you agree or disagree with the statement it is still a powerful statement and i think there's enough to support that statement at that time period in history um, right. But what really hits home is he drags those characters through it and you get a Shakespearean tragedy kind of packaged with this Hitchcockian giallo framework. It's brilliant. Yeah. I mean, cause like, I guess the inverse of this is Oliver Stone, right? Like you get just this, like this situation with the politician is much more believable than something that would be in an Oliver Stone film. You know, like you could, this situation has probably played out in real life. Um, I over mean, and I know over we're, again. Yep. we're, 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 you know, the Chapolitic thing. Yes. But like even unbeknownst to, to that, like this has happened oh, yeah. before with no yeah. evidence. Yeah. Well, I think the difference is, is Stone talks down to you, whether in a bad way or a good way. He's telling you this is how it is. Whereas I think the Palma is like, here, I'm going to give you a bunch of stuff and you figure it out. Yeah. What do you think? You know, I think that's the difference between those two filmmakers because Stone, and it's weird because both of them ended up working together, right? With Scarface. But yes. it's, oh, uh, wrote that, right? Yeah. 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 But it's, it's, Stone has always been known to, but especially with his politics, just to hit you over the head with it. It's like, you know, <laughs> bam, this is the way it is. Whereas, uh, you know, at any of the political films I think of with De Palma and his political slants, it's usually here's a bunch of stuff, you know, that I feel one way, but you guys figure it out. And I think, you know, it comes from an era of filmmakers, too, where everybody was really kind of pushing back against the system, where I think now only in recent years again, are we starting to see filmmakers push back against the system again? Um, uh, mostly they're coming from, uh, you know, minorities, which is great. You know, we get to hear these voices and stuff, but it seemed like in the seventies, everybody was pushing, everybody was pushing for change. Everybody was pushing for things and getting it out there because there was all this craziness going on in the political world. So, but no, I think Troy, I think you, uh, you may have changed my interpretation of a movie that doesn't, uh, that doesn't happen very often. Well, I did. I, that's the great thing about talking about a film like this, especially with you two. I mean, when we talk about Travolta telling the story of, you know, the first wiretap gone wrong, I didn't even consider it that it's sort of a, it's Travolta's version of it. So any of the sequences that don't exactly make sense, well, it's because he's telling the story. And as he's telling the story, De Palma is showing you the story, which is, mm -hmm. I, I like, you know, that aspect of it, but um, no, it's, this is the type of film I love talking about with people like you because it's does, it goes a little bit more beyond the, hey, this is a cool sequence. I mean, De Palma, you can sit here and just dissect everything that he does from a technical standpoint and just be in awe. Uh, yeah. and, and what I what I <laughs> what I'm most excited about from um, Cameron, I mean, he's 15 years old. Um, he's he's watching this film and he's amazed at the technical aspects of it he will revisit this film later on in years and he will start unpacking all the stuff that's in it. And I'm so excited for him because if he revisits yeah. this multiple times, he's going to see more than just, wow, how did they do that shot? That looked great. It was a thriller. I, it was a really great story. I like the concept. He goes back, revisits it, unpacks a little bit more, unpacks a little bit more. There, 
I mean, this thing gives to you as a viewer every time you watch it. I, there's not a lot of films like that. Yeah, it's very true. Yeah. What other aspects have we not talked about that was on your guys' notes? I, I, I feel like, especially with a movie like this, I'm I'm going on and on and on. So. I still can't believe they smoke cigarettes in a hospital. <laughs> <laughs> that, that might be I the most unbelievable thing that happens in this movie. Wow. <laughs> oh, man. I can believe it because I was there to see it. I saw it uh, firsthand. Growing up, man, it's uh, crazy. Was it time for the question? Then we're gonna are we ready to make a decision on this one? Yeah. All right. Well, Sammy, you are our guest. We are so happy to have you back. I was so excited to talk to you about this film. I know when we gave the list, I I just said, "Hey, Sammy, you're gonna talk about this film." You're like, "Okay," <laughs> because <laughs> I, I've heard your episodes on De Palma, and I was really hoping to tap into. Yeah, we've uh, never covered Blowout on our show. I don't think. Yeah, I I, I know I. I think it was dressed to kill you have covered. And I remember that episode very well, but we, we just got done having a great conversation about Brian De Palma's blowout. The question starts with you. Is this film a bomb? No, this film is not a bomb. This film is one of the great films. In my opinion, I, I you know, if I had a top hundred list, this would make my top hundred list. I think it's Brian De Palma's best film. And, uh, you know, I was, I've been thinking about this whole time we've been talking about it since we started recording and all the stuff I've done in between. <laughs> uh, I've, I've been thinking, why did this not movie not hit? And, and then it occurred to me while we've been sitting here talking about it that, you know, Heaven's Gate comes out the year before this, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. 80, 81. Yeah. 80. yeah. And people were already starting to turn on New Hollywood with uh, when Jaws hit because they wanted stuff like Jaws more than they wanted stuff like that. So I wonder if the Heaven's Gate, you know, that eclipsed all these filmmakers in that era. But I don't know. I don't know why this one didn't catch on, though, because I think I think it's better than Dress to Kill. And I think it's better than uh, some of the De Palma's other work. I think it's better than Carrie, personally. But I mean, I, I would agree with that. But I definitely think this is not a bomb. All right. Brad, first time watch. Blowout. Is it a bomb? Uh, not a bomb for me as well. Um, I'm, I'm probably a little cooler on it than you guys, but I still appreciate this movie. And I think it it definitely accomplishes what it wants. And, you know, any movie that you're kind of yearning, yearning, I can't believe I said yearning, uh, <laughs> you, you want to go back and, and, and watch again. Uh, you know, I think it definitely says something about it. Um, I, I probably have been persuaded a little bit on some of my thoughts initially, and, you know, there, there is some really sort of the, the very end of this movie is is maybe a little heavy handed. I mean, like killing a character right in front of the American flag is is, you know, saying a lot. Um, but anyway, it, it's a great film. Obviously, De Palma is known for his technicality on cinematography, things like that. That you know, obviously that's on showcase here. But, uh, but yeah, and Travolta's pretty awesome. Like the fact that he didn't sleep hardly at all while making this movie. So that's why he looks so disheveled throughout this whole thing is, uh, you know, kind of helps build that character. Cause you believe this guy is like down and out. And then as soon as he has this moment in his life, like literally it's all he, like it's this obsession, um, you know, kind of like in the conversation with, uh, you know, it's just, I don't know. It, it, it's a great film. Again, I'm going to go back and watch it. I'll let you guys know when I do and let you know if my opinion changes at all. 
Okay. Well, I, I agree with both of you. It's definitely not a bomb. I, I've, it's a brilliant film. I really would put it in the top 50 of my favorite films. Ooh, I one upper. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I don't know. Travolta gets a lot of recognition for Pulp Fiction as he should not taking that away. Yeah, Greece, Saturday Night Fever. I mean, he has, I think a really great filmography. I love watching John Travolta on screen, but I really love watching him in this. And I, I think Brian De Palma is at his peak here. Um, and I always have a tough time. Like, like I said at the beginning, I, I love this one is my favorite, but then the untouchables comes along. And I'm like, Ooh, that's my favorite. But I think in terms uh, of the, the films that he wrote and directed, this is my favorite Brian De Palma film that really feels, I'll give you this, Amy, it does feel like the most Brian De Palma film yeah. over the untouchables. Um, yeah. But man, I, I think this one is a masterpiece and it's one of those films that I don't hear enough people talking about. You hear filmmakers talking about this, but what I'd really love is just the average Joe film goer would, would kind of pick this up and, and take a chance on it. I do yeah. think all of the reasons that we talked about, it's probably a perfect storm of these things are going on in Hollywood. This is going on sort of in the culture uh, you got a, a 70s film being released in 81 and people were not receptive to that. And I guarantee more people probably talked about that ending and were like, no, nah, I'm, I'm really not into that type of film right now. I'd rather go see ninjas. And so they went to see enter the ninja over this one. I, I get it. Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, yeah. Uh, you, you did several times. <laughs> I, I did. Yes. Um, so, but I, I just, I love that so many filmmakers like Tarantino are pushing this one to the forefront, yeah. but I, I really wish more average Joe folks would seek this one out and watch it because I think it's one of the best thrillers out there. And then mm -hmm. if you want to do a deep dive, there's a lot more here on multiple viewings or, or stuff you want to yeah. go to. But I'm, I'm telling everybody, if you haven't seen this film, you need to go out and watch it. Um, yeah. I mean, it's got a fantastic Blu-ray release. It's all on streaming sites. If you have a Criterion subscription, they're playing it this month yeah. on Criterion. Yeah, it's on there. That's right. Yeah, it was playing on Prime last month. Then I went to go check it today, and it wasn't on there. But yeah, it's almost always out there somewhere because yeah. it's uh, again a lot of people tend to overlook it. You know, I, I don't. I know we both have massive movie collections, and we probably sometimes somebody will come over, or we'll have somebody come over, and they'll say they saw something, and we'll say, "Hey, what have you seen this and stuff?" The Blowout is one of the few films where if somebody comes and hangs out with me, and they haven't seen it. I'll be like, hey, you want to watch it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, because I want to know right then and there. Because they'll say, well, I really like Carrie. I don't think anything can get better than Carrie. And I'm like, uh, have you ever seen Blow Up? <laughs> you know, so it's one of the few that I'll kind of force feed on somebody a little bit. I'm, I'm pretty open-minded, obviously, with a huge movie collection. I'll be like, yeah, whatever you want to watch, man. Just pick something. I don't care. You know, but that's one that I will say you should really stop. Take a moment take an hour and a half of your time and watch it seriously. Yeah. It, it's a great film. Um, so let's talk about the Blu-ray release and um, maybe a not so great film, but 1968's murder a la mode. So we were talking about when we were talking about blowout, Hey, let's watch this student film that's on there. Maybe we can talk about it. And Brad, you, you didn't make it very long. I'm, I'm curious. How long did you get into the film before you tapped out? You don't want to know. Okay. I have a guess. Um, I'm going to say it was, you didn't even get through the theme song. 
Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> because I have said from day one, the, the worst theme song I've ever heard is from the Firefly TV show. That has just been dethroned. Um, Murder a la mode, the, the theme song by W.F. Finley, is now the worst thing I've ever heard in any kind oh, of... It's just terrible. That, that is William... So that's the star of the movie. That's William Finley, who's also known as the Phantom and Phantom of the Paradise. Mm-hmm. Longtime friend of Brian De Palma. Uh, I love him. Uh, he was a great actor. He died, unfortunately, too young, and he was unique, uh, a very esoteric and eccentric actor in the ways. That song is awful. <laughs> Terrible. And I know, I know yeah, I know what you're thinking right now. You're like, Troy, it can't be that bad. It can't be worse than Firefly, Troy. Oh, I'm telling you right now, <laughs> I, I've never, I, the, the whole movie is about some ice pick killer. And I got to tell you right now, if if the theme song doesn't like make you go grab an ice pick and start, you know, just plunging it into your ears so you don't hear it anymore. Um, once you watch the film, I don't know. So you you lasted as long as the credits. Sammy, you watched all of it, right? Uh, yes, I did. Okay. Um, <laughs> I consider I got- it a badge of honor. Yeah, so when when we get to the boyfriend point of view in the narrative, because it's it's trying to do this uh, whole retelling of a sequence of you know what happened to these characters, and you, you get to the boyfriend point of view now. I wanted to take an ice pick to myself and end the misery. It is so bad, but oh. yeah, yeah, it, it's it feels like <sighs> this sounds awful to say, but it feels like teenagers breaking up, and then you have to sit there and listen to that's the love of their life for three hours oh. and wanting to tell them, look, it gets better. Okay. Shut the fuck up. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great analogy. I mean, it's it, it, it does. It, at some point, the movie completely grinds to a halt and we just have these, you know, and I hate using this term because I know De Palma was going for something. He's young. He's trying to show his abilities, but these artsy fartsy shots on mattresses. And, oh, it's just, uh, I just couldn't handle it, but I managed to make it through the movie. I don't know how I managed to make it through the movie. I think it was just my morbid curiosity. Oh, I, um, I know how I got through mine. It was a little friend <laughs> called Jameson. Oh, well, um, there you go. I, yeah. I didn't have that, unfortunately. Wow. It's terrible. And so I'll tell you some of the things that you get through that theme song. You're like, well, nothing can be as terrible as that theme song. Oh, wait till she goes and visits the bank. And then you get this entire bank sequence that is so terrible. It's probably the worst thing I've seen in film history up until the point that he starts doing the poor Marx Brothers shtick, um, the <laughs> comedy, which you go, okay, well, I thought the bank scene was terrible. That is the most terrible. Yeah. But, oh, God, this thing. What is, is this movie? <laughs> I don't I don't know what it is. It feels like it's um, it feels like it's a thesis more than it's a movie. I don't know what it is. Uh, so the Palma in the early days, he mixed up. He mixed comedy in quite a bit. Uh, yeah. His early De Niro films got some comedy in them. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you this. He doesn't strike me as a funny guy. No. And uh, everything I've ever seen where there's comedy in his movies, little moments like the fake scream, that moment's funny and blowout. And there's moments in The Untouchables that are funny. And there's moments in Mission Impossible that are funny. Uh, in a lot of his movies, there's moments. But when he would go fully on into comedy, 
Oh my God. They're, they're so terrible. They're just so groan inducing. They're just not funny. And this movie attempts to be funny and edgy and it's neither. Yeah. That, that's, that's an understatement. Yeah. It's terrible. So criterion. I mean, there's a couple of, there's a couple of moments, right? You get a couple of early kind of, no. you can see the DePaul, you can see the DePaul in there a little bit. Well, you can it, see it a little bit. If, if by that you're meaning the and first 15 minutes of him filming girls taking their tops off. Oh uh, yeah. Maybe that's it. Maybe mm-hmm. that's the diploma. No, I, here's the thing. I, got- I, I love criterion. I do. I, I think it's a fantastic company. But shame on you, Criterion, for putting this piece of crap on blah. I mean, well, at least one- they put it on here as a bonus feature. I mean, no. it could have been worse. No, come on. Give me give me tons. Of, <laughs> give me anything else other than this junk. I mean, you have one of the best movies out there from the 80s. Heck, I mean, it's in Sammy's top 100, my top 50. And you put this piece of shit film on Criterion. Wow. You are so into I am this close to returning my Barnes and Noble 50% off sale over protest. I don't believe that for a minute. Okay. Maybe that's an extreme. Maybe that's that's hyperbole. Okay. But come on criterion. That's shame on you. Yeah. No. Well, again, I'm just thankful that they did it that way. I I will say though, it is, it was a dreadful experience. It was, uh, Uh, it's terrible. Shame. It was rough. Shame, shame, shame. Yeah, I would not recommend it to anybody except the morbidly, very morbidly curious. Nope, don't go morbidly <laughs> curiosity somewhere else or whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the the other film that I watched because I had never seen it, had heard about it. Again, I, I want to bring it up. I yeah. remember Brad. We were playing. We were all playing a game together. Yeah. So for, for the record, everybody wants to know we were playing online together, being buddies and hanging out. And Brad's like, "Yeah, okay, I'm gonna go." And uh, he's going to go watch Murdoch. I, I immediately said to Troy, he's, he's not going to make it. Make, I was like, I know he's I, not going to make it. Like, it was funny because you laughed and I was like, yeah, all right. I guess, you know, I was like, it's 1015. I guess they're saying, you know, I'm old now, so no. I have to go to bed or whatever. No. But yeah, I no, get no, it no, now. No. I get no. it. Uh-uh. Yeah, no, we, we knew what you were going to do. <laughs> yeah. I, I, hey, look. Four, you do you. Four you, minutes. Four. Oh, as soon as I heard that theme song. I'm like, Brad's not going to make it past this. And then when you were like, hey, I'm going to go watch this movie. I'm like, he's not, he's not going to make it like five minutes, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm glad I'm glad we know you so well. Yeah, Brad. I know. I know. I'm actually envious of you twice this week. You got to see Blowout for the first time and you didn't watch Murder Hell Mode. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the big winner this week. You yeah, are. You really are. Um, do you do you remember much about uh, Blow Up, Sammy? I mean, how long has it since you've seen that? Oh, it's been a long time. I haven't watched it in a long time. Uh, I can remember bits and pieces. I, I need to revisit it. I just haven't got around to it. Yeah, I'll say this. Uh, and Brad, I strongly encourage you. The next time you decide you're going to go watch Blow Out, try and make it a double feature with this one. I will say this. I had an initial reaction after watching it of, meh. I mean, I understand its importance. It's it's okay. It is really arty in some spaces, but I mean, that's obviously from the director, but I, I will say this. It's one of those films that has stuck with me and I, I kind of thought about it every day since then, specifically some sequences that are in there. Um, it's very artistic. It, it's clearly saying something about the sixties and I really like the main story of a gentleman kind of going out into the park, taking a set of pictures that he wants to use for his photography book 
and assumes that these pictures that he's got, it, he's going to end his book with it because they're nice romantic pictures of a couple in the park. And then as he starts looking at them further and further and blows up sequences um, or sections of the picture, he finds out there, there could have been a murder that took place. And um, how the film deals with that and where it goes with it, I think is super interesting. However, keep in mind, it's you know an Italian director um, with a, a high concept and they're trying to make a statement about the 60s. So it does have some artistic flourishes in its storytelling that you have to get through. But you can definitely tell why Coppola, De Palma, all the filmmakers were extremely influenced by this. And I mean, it, it was it made a big splash in the film circuits and also for, you know, awards as well. Yeah. Um, and it's I, I think for those who are into film, you got to watch it if you haven't seen it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I can remember my initial reaction was also the same as yours. It was, uh, I mean, it was fine, but I don't really see it. And sometimes that's the way it is with an influencing film, with a film that's very influential, right? Like you see the the, the film that influenced the film you love and you're like, yeah, you know, maybe I see it. But I do see some of blowout in this. And what I really took away from it, the one time I can remember, the one thing I can always remember taking away from blow up is the obsession part, the obsession with yes. the photographs. Like, because this is the swinging 60s and there's ladies throwing themselves <laughs> at uh, David Hemmings uh, at moments and he's still, be, he's worried about his photos. Yeah. And, and <laughs> it's really eating away at him. Yeah. And, and you get a lot of ambiguity that occurs and um, it doesn't have, I would say, the gut punch ending that Blowout has. No, but it does have a ending that's going to make you think. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I, I really, again, if, if you go back and revisit, um, blowout, Brad, I, 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 I would encourage you to check this one out too. If you've never seen okay. it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I did you say I, Italian. Yeah. So I, you know, <laughs> I know, I know. Um, and I know we've all seen the conversation. <laughs> and, and Sammy, don't think I didn't hear you say about people who don't like Italian films on your podcast. I felt very offended by that. Like he's calling I me out. out loud on I don't that. like that. You, have, yeah. you haven't seen enough Italian films. That's what I say. That's exactly. I agree. Um, conversation. <laughs> and, and again, if you want to, if you want to, you know, catch another film that I don't know if it directly influenced De Palma, but it's obviously in the same genre. And you, you know, Coppola is being influenced by Blow Up and also the political themes as well. But they're friendly as well. So I would have to believe. Yeah, one influence. They had, they had a quote unquote conversation yes. about the conversations. Um, I, I'll, if you haven't seen the conversation from 74, it's one of my favorite Gene Hackman performances. However, I'll say this like the, the thing that I like about Blow Out more is Travolta as a character versus Gene Hackman. Like Travolta is much more relatable than what Hackman's going through. But um, I think it's the paranoia. Harry's like way too paranoid. Yeah, but it's it's a great thriller. And obviously it has oh, yes. politics and stuff. You get, you get to see a very young Harrison Ford in it as well. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, it's it's fantastic. It's it's a great. I, but again, I don't think it resonates with me as much as Blowout did. But I mean, I still think it's a great film especially mm. if, it, if you're going to look for something that, hey, you want to see what, a, what you know, um, blow up has influenced. We'll look at these two films from the 70s and 80s and these two directors. And um, conversation is fantastic for anybody who hasn't seen it. Check it out. Yeah, I agree. Um, Brad. It's one, of, it's one of Coppola's best films. 
Oh, uh, yeah, 100%. yeah he's, he's more than Godfather of one, two, and uh, Apocalypse Now. Like yes. the conversation needs to be yeah. right there as well. Oh, yeah. for for I, Hackman and Coppola, both, I I think they don't get like people when they talk about those names, they don't talk about this film enough. And they people forget Coppola was was nominated for was nominated twice that year for best director for the conversation and Godfather two. He beat himself with Godfather two. So <laughs> that's freaking impressive. They re, they re, he released those two films eight months apart. I, I still think that's one of the greatest sort of back to backs ever. Yeah. Well, what's amazing is he didn't even want to do the Godfather. He didn't really want to do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think we should talk about the Godfather three sometime. That should be on our list. I really am interested to see that recut. That new cut? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I really am interested to see that. Does it completely take out what's her name? Because she's the worst part of that movie. <laughs> yeah, we okay. really need to talk about Godfather 3. Uh, now, we have, so we have a ton of stuff to cover at the last part of this. I know we've got a lot of information dump we're going to do. But before we get it, if you guys have liked hearing the three of us, um, there are a lot of episodes you can go back to. And there will be a lot more episodes coming, too, because... With Sammy, we beg and plead because uh, we know he's a busy guy, but um, we kind of give him the schedule and just say, just work work stuff in. So he's coming back actually, I want to say in August um, for a film, another one we told him and said, man, you got to come back and do this one. So he's coming back for that. But Brad, do you also want to talk about this little project that the three of us are going to try and start doing here shortly as well? Yes. So um, starting at the end of July, first part of August, we are launching a second show. Uh, this show will be a part of our regular feed, so you won't have to do anything to get it. Um, it is going to be called Not A Bomb Watches, and we are going to be watching the 19... Uh, was it 1989? Well, when was that? Let me see. Hold on. I got to make double check. Okay. 1998 Japanese science fiction show, Cowboy Bebop. Now, Troy. Yes. What is your history with Cowboy Bebop? Um, you announcing that we're doing a show <laughs> with Cowboy Bebop is my history. Actually, this is probably going to shock you. I own the Blu-ray set plus the film, but they've never been unwrapped, and they sit in the two-watch pile because somebody at some point years ago said, you have to watch this show. And I'm like, well, I have to watch this show, so I'll buy the show, and I'll sit over there. And that's been, I don't know, a decade ago, but it's sitting there for me to watch. Yep. Nice. nice. Sammy? Well, uh, my history with this, sh I know about this show, um, but as I said, and the first time I ever came on this uh, wonderful program, that anime or Japanese animation is usually not my forte. So uh, to kind of give you full disclosure, I was walking around the streets of Baltimore with Troy, uh, those hollowed streets. Fells Point. And, uh, yeah. yeah. And Troy brings this up to me and I'm like, hmm. So I, I, I want to preface this. I'm not saying I'm not saying anything great about myself, but I've been offered to do other podcasts by other people over the years. I've always said no, but I love talking to Brad and Troy so much that I would want to do this so badly. And it's an opportunity for me to talk about something I do love, which I don't talk about a lot on my show because it's a film show. But I love television. Uh, I love television series. I'm, I'm a big fan. And the fact that it's Cowboy Bebop, something I know nothing about, I just, I'm like so excited. It's unbelievable. Plus I get to talk to you guys. Come on. It's a win-win. Yeah. We're pretty excited. Like, it's, it's great. It's going to be great for me. And I'm flattered, honestly, that you oh, guys would even ask me. 
Wow. So how yeah. it's go- how it's going to work is um, there are 26 episodes of Cowboy Bebop, um, and each episode of our podcast is going to cover two episodes. Um, so that'll be 13 episodes, and then we're going to do like a 14th sort of overall impressions, reviews sort of deal. Um, are we going to watch that movie? Wasn't there a movie afterwards? Yeah, too? we can talk about whether or not after we watch all okay. of them, if we want to watch the movie I, as well. I'd um, imagine I'll probably end up watching the movie. Yeah, yeah. I, I figured we would, <laughs> but I didn't want to like throw that on you all. Okay. Well, um, like I said, we are tentatively scheduled to uh, record our first episode um, at the end of July, and we plan on releasing them every Saturday. Uh, you know, and, and like I said, it's be a normal part of the feeds. So you'll just get 14 bonus episodes um, if you subscribe. And I'm really looking forward to it. I've seen Cowboy Bebop a few times. Um, I've been really wanting to do something with Troy and someone else to kind of, you know, bring in more of an audience as well. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I don't know if people will just come on and listen to us do Cowboy Bebop and leave. Um, but I'm hoping, you know, you can do something else and, and people stay on. And Troy and I have been, really kind of throwing this idea around about doing a TV show for a long time. And we just finally kind of picked the right one. It was like, Oh, they're going to do a live action one. And, you know, next year, I believe, why don't we do the, the source material? So I'm really excited. I'm like super thrilled to have Sammy and, and I get another day to talk to Troy and Sammy outside of all of our normal text messages and Xbox <laughs> live. So, you know, yeah. talking about face off. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's going to be great. It's going to be great to, to to make it an appointment time, to make it uh, weekly where I get to not just record a conversation with you guys, but just talk to you. I mean, I was flattered. I really was. I was generally, generally, genuinely, not generally, genuinely touched when Troy asked me uh, that I, you, Brad, had said, you think Sammy would be interested? <laughs> and I was like, wow, that made me feel good. Well, we, we love having you on. I mean, we... We love all the guests that we come on. Um, we thought this was a perfect match and that Brad could kind of lead us down sort of this anime trail. Um, but yeah, it, it'll be fun. And there'll be shorter episodes because, I mean, to Brad's point, it's a long series. The, the series aren't movie length. And I got a feeling there'll be a bit of a different vibe. But uh, for Sammy and I, you know, we're going to school. Uh, Brad's going to teach us all about anime. So I'm, yeah, they're I'm 24 yeah. the episodes, like 24 minutes long. So I figured... You can't. I don't like. I'm thinking like an hour. Like I don't know if you could talk more yeah. than two episodes. I'm least. curious to watch it. It, it may be one yeah. of those where I'll just sit here with my arms crossed. Like, nope, not not into this. <laughs> we'll see. I hope not. I hope not. Um, everybody, watched, everybody. I've watched the first it, so. episode since you guys have asked, and I could say I, I'm in. Okay. So. Before we talk about next week and all the other stuff, one of the things that I love doing about the show is obviously being able to talk to you, Sammy, a bunch of other people that do shows, but it's, it's also going on this trip and talking with listeners, but then also fellow podcasters. So we just over the last week struck up with a conversation with somebody who's doing a podcast and (laughs) turns out, uh, myself and, and, um, one of these people were exchanging emails back and forth and what we actually want to get them on the show. But my favorite thing about doing this especially as a hobby is meeting people and then discovering other podcasts. And I mean, there's a bazillion podcasts out there. There's a lot to go through and it really takes a lot for me to like find something and then turn around and go, Oh, I'm going to go down their episodes list and, and list 
listen to some other things. So the podcast I want everybody to kind of go and check out if you got some time is a podcast called the look back, excuse me, the back look cinema podcast with Zach and Zoe. I think I got that right. Or is it the look? That's back? correct. Okay. So here's the premise of the podcast. They're um, Zach and Zoe. It's father and son. Um, he is showing his son all of these films that he grew up on. And so the three episodes that I've listened to so far is Conan the Barbarian, uh, Enter the Dragon, and The Last Dragon. So there's a lot of other episodes in there, Gremlins, Rambo, everything else. But I love this concept uh, because it hits home to me of a mm -hmm. father sitting down and saying, hey, I want to show you this film. I grew up on it. I think it's great. And I want to get your impression of it. And my favorite thing, and I love this episode, is um, they're talking about Enter the Dragon. And so you'll relate to this, Sammy. The father's talking about Enter the Dragon. They see it in the theaters uh, or you know VHS or when you got to see it. And as soon as they say Bruce Lee, then they're going out to the backyard and they're kicking each other and they're practicing kung fu based on what they saw. It's kicking his nephew, kicking you know his brother, all this other stuff. And, they, and they're in just in the backyard kicking each other. And his son's just response to all of this after his dad tells a story of doing backyard you know kung fu, his son is like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> Just just that just had me laughing out loud in the office over that whole. But Zach and Zoe have great chemistry. It's an awesome concept. And of course, I always gravitate to these stories of sort of father, son, father, daughter. And I think these guys pull it off. So we are going to get them on the show at some point. I, I kind of asked them um, just kind of discovering their podcast, us exchanging some emails. They've been fantastic. But if you nice. can, please go check out um, the Backlook Cinema Podcast with Zach and Zoe. Um, definitely check that out. Sounds like he's around about our age then, the dad. He is, huh? yeah. And he's an East Coaster too. But uh, I, I got to tell you, I mean, I I can relate to this podcast so much because there's so many things I get excited about with my kids. And, of course, the reaction from my kids is, what is wrong with you? So um, <laughs> I'm glad somebody else is experiencing that too. Yeah. So, uh, and of course, Sammy, let's talk about the gentleman's guide to, to midnight cinema. That's where everybody finds you and Todd, right? Yes. Yes. Every week um, we put out a little show. You can find us over at ggtmc.com or uh, anchor.fm slash ggtmc. You can find us there. If you sign up at anchor, you can send us voicemail so you can communicate with us. Um, We've brought that back. Uh, it's it's fun. It's fun. It, you know, we 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 had such a big community at one point. We still do in some areas, and it's hard to keep track of all of it. And you you feel bad sometimes. I get so many emails and so many messages, and I try to keep up, but it's hard, guys. It really is. <laughs> but and I'm not saying a lot of people listen to the show, and not nearly as many listen to it as they used to. But I do appreciate everybody that takes the time. And I agree with Troy. The one of the great things about doing this is the communication and everything. You know, it was touching. I was up there in Baltimore just recently and uh, Randy, I heard Randy talking to my son and Randy said, you know, the only reason why all these guys are in this house right now is because of your dad. And uh, my son was like, Who, what? Why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, yeah, that is kind of weird to think about, you know, but uh, it's cool. You know, I never would have met Troy if it wasn't for this and, uh, you know, podcasting. I never would have got to know Brad. I never would have got to know anybody that I cherish now as part of my life. So please check us out. And yeah, that's all I got to say about our show. <laughs> it, it's hey, I'm telling you, folks, it's one of the premier film podcasts. I I've been listening to it for years and um 
to Sammy's point, it it is amazing that somebody can come out to the East Coast, uh, and and even my wife was commenting like, why are all these people coming from you know Pennsylvania, from Maryland, everything else, to our home, which we've met before. Don't get me wrong; it wasn't like we yeah. were just opening yeah, yeah. up to total strangers. <laughs> Uh, and, and Sean, I do remember all the times we hung out, so <laughs> don't give me grief over that. But, um, yeah, it was, it was, man, it was pretty fantastic to have somebody, uh, you know, of, of Rick's caliber as a person, not as a podcast or anything else, but as a person and seeing yeah. all these people just kind of show up and, and just want to be in the room. So, yeah. uh, that's, that, that was kind of cool to be a part of. So if it's worth doing it for anything, it's worth doing it to wake up and have a cup of coffee and beat Randy to the last two copies of the Rick Baker book. Yes, that was that was pretty awesome. <laughs> and then text and then the text Brad about book. It. Yeah, and then text Brad about it because that's the kind of people we are. Yep. That's called <laughs> a Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, some people have to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Brad, you get to pick next week, and I think I think we had a change up, right? We did. So full disclosure, we were going to do a, a film called Pathfinder. Uh, that that film has now been uh, moved out and on back onto the list, and the designated hitter coming up is Brainstorm from 1983, uh, Douglas Trimble um, science fiction film with uh, Mr. Christopher Walken and Natalie Woods. Uh, last film. Uh, this was a request from Philip, and when it came in, I was completely. F- just kind of fascinated by the story behind the film and the film itself. And I was like, we're doing it. Like, I'm just going to move this and we're, we're doing it. And Troy was like, okay, good. So we're doing that film. I already watched it. I'm going to watch it again because I can't remember. I won't be able to remember everything I want to talk about in five more days. But anyway, um, I'm super excited. Uh, we're going to have a guest on again. Um, they've been on the show before. So I'm, I'm super excited to do it and to talk about it. Cause again, this one's production is insane. Yeah. It's, it's going to be a fun movie to talk about. And, um, thank you, Philip for that recommendation because Brad and I, as soon as you wrote in this awesome email about it, we're like, dude, we got, we got to talk about this now. Um, but then also Philip sent us a ton of great referential videos for blowout as well that I went through um, and watched. So a big thank you because there was tons of stuff that I learned as, as a result of watching all that stuff. Now, Brad, you didn't watch it because you thought he was sending stuff about. The yeah. Movie I thought it was about brainstorm. About. So yeah. sorry, but, but no, go back and watch it. I mean, my, my favorite thing that, um, I think was a part of that was the whole Garrett Brown interview when he's talking about steady cam working on that, et cetera. So most of the stuff is on the criterion disc, but Oh, it, okay. Yeah, it was fun to see. A lot of that stuff's on YouTube anyways, but there, there were a couple of gems in there that Philip sent us that weren't on the disc itself. So big yeah. thank you for that. Um, if anybody wants to send us a recommendation of their favorite movie bombs, Brad, or even tell us what their thoughts are on this fantastic film blowout, how do they get a hold of us? That's not a bomb pod at gmail.com. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as well. Find us there. Um yeah, we'll be back next week with uh, Brainstorm. And more, I, ca- more cowbell, right? 
Yes, because we have Christopher Walken coming in. He's got a fever. So (laughs) I, I, you know, my Christopher Lambert is pretty bad. I'm not even going to attempt to do Walken. So (laughs) I got to say, I think your Lambert is not bad. It was pretty spot on, man. I got to (laughs) say, I've listened to that episode a couple of times. It's it's shocking. I. I felt like I was listening yeah. to Chris himself. Um, I felt it's like pretty I was- embarrassing. Like that show is like for us is pretty big. And <laughs> yeah. the fact that it's like, oh, people are going to think I'm an idiot. But whatever. <laughs> I felt like I was playing World War Z with uh, Lambert yeah. the other night. Oh, yeah. That was that was good. Um, Sammy- I've, seen Brain- I've seen Brainstorm in the theater, by the way. Oh, I did too. So Brad and I were talking about this. I think when I saw it, it was one of the 70 millimeter uh, prints that oh, they wow. did um, yeah. for Brainstorm. And I can't remember if it was one of those seven or eight track Dolby's, but I do remember 70 millimeter being a big thing because that movie kind of blew me away, especially the sequences um, towards the end. Mm-hmm. More on So there's a little tidbit of next week's episode, and I, I think you'll be excited about our guest too. Uh, Sammy, I, man, what, what can I say? It's, it's such a privilege to sit down and talk to you at any point in time about anything, yeah. but especially well, Brian De Palma. It, it yeah, just yeah. warms my heart, man. Well, it was great hanging out with you in person. Hopefully me and Brad will be hanging out soon. Uh, you know, we, we don't live too far from each other. It, it's great having friends. That's what I'll say. Yeah, it is. <laughs> friends like yes. you guys. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Friends with that have the same problem as you. We buy yeah. way too much stuff that we don't watch. No. Seriously, I, we're going to have to get into counseling, guys. I think I'm getting divorced over the amount of purchases I've done the last week. <laughs> it's out of control. It is insane. It's completely out of control. They're going to take away my PayPal and my debit card. <laughs> I'm not going to have access to any funds at this rate. Okay, sorry. Um, God. Anyways, I don't know if you downloaded this thing and you're listening in the morning, the afternoon, the evening. I hope you're having an amazing day. Thank you for listening to us. And if you're playing along, go check out that film. It shouldn't be too hard to find. It's it's all over the place. And uh, again, I, I hope you have an awesome day. Don't lose your head. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs>